This is Commission President Sam Cho convening the regular meeting of November 14th, 2023. The time is 9, uh, excuse me, 12.09 uh, p.m. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle Headquarters Building, Commission Chambers, and virtually via Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for, of all commissioners in attendance. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Here. Thank you. Commissioner Cho. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank you. And Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Thank you. We do have a full commission here today. Excellent. A few housekeeping items before we begin. For everyone in the meeting room, please turn your cell phones to silent. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when, actively, when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you're a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually, or you are a member of staff in a presentation and are actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission during public comment may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak and will turn them back off again at the conclusion of their remarks. For anyone here at the dais, please turn off the speakers on any of your computers or and silence your devices. Please also remember to address your questions to be recognized to speak through the chair and uh, to wait to speak until you've been recognized. You'll turn your microphones on and off as needed. All the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting, so I thank you in advance. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method, so it's clear for anyone participating virtually how the votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people, with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please now stand and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge All right. First item of business today on the is the approval of the agenda. As a reminder to my fellow commissioners, uh, if you uh, if a commissioner wishes to comment for or against an item on the consent agenda, it is not necessary to pull the item from the consent agenda. You can uh, instead offer supporting or opposing comments later in this meeting once we get to the consent agenda portion of the agenda. Please wait until the motion to approve the consent agenda is on the floor for these comments, if any. However, it is appropriate at this time, if a commissioner wants to ask questions of staff or wishes to have a dialogue on a consent agenda item to request the item to be pulled for separate discussion. Are there any items to be pulled from the consent agenda or any motions to rearrange the orders of the day? Seeing none, commissioners, the question is now on the approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda as presented? So moved. Second. Great. The motion has been made and seconded. Are there any objections to the approval agenda as presented? All right, hearing none, the agenda is approved as presented. Thank you. We have no special order scheduled for, day, for today, so we'll move on to, um, next on the agenda, which is uh, our executive director's report. Executive Director Metric, you have the floor. Good afternoon, commissioners. I'd like to begin my remarks by wishing everyone a belated Veterans Day, Diwali, and Native American Heritage Month. As part of our effort to become a model for diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's important to acknowledge these holidays and events to build a culture of belonging here at the port. Looking ahead to later this week, we have the Transgender Gender Day of Remembrance event hosted by our Transgender 
inclusivity work group this Thursday. Much of our progress in equity over the last few years can be attributed to the leadership of our Senior Director of the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, Bukta Gesar. And speaking of Bukta, we are thrilled to learn, we were thrilled to learn that Bukta received the Girl Scouts of Western Washington Leader of Distinction Award for her success in advocating for systemic, or, um, systemic uh, root, a change rooted in racial equity and social justice. Uh, Commissioner Mohammed was at the event, I understand, a few weeks ago to present the award, and many Port colleagues joined in the celebration. Congra congratulations to Bukda for being recognized for her role as a leader, changemaker, and a mentor. A well-deserved honor. In less positive news, I want to assure commissioners that we are closely tracking the federal funding discussions in Washington, D.C. this week. Without an extension, the federal government will shut down or perhaps part of it will shut down on Friday. And as before, we're making contingency plans in that unfortunate possibility. I want to assure the traveling public, however, that the Seattle Tacoma International Airport will remain fully open if such a situation does occur. Our federal partners at TSA and CBP will continue to work, although without pay, and so we do not anticipate significant impacts. As always, we do encourage everyone to get to the airport early and to check your airline for updates. I know that commissioners and port executive, uh, executive leadership have been receiving numerous communications from port employees about the ongoing conflict in Israel and Palestine. This is a difficult time for many of us, and it is incredibly hard to process what has happened and continues to happen. As executive director, I want to reiterate that my, one of my top concerns is for the safety and well-being of our employees. Acts of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia will not be tolerated in any way. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that our workplace is secure, respectful, and aligned with our raised values. These are stressful and impactful times, and I want to encourage all of our employees to take care of themselves and to look for, out for others that may be struggling. I urge employees to take advantage of their benefits, including our employee assistance program. I look forward to working with you commissioners to ensure that this message is, is clearly received by everyone at the port. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight a few items. The marquee item for today's commission meeting will be the introduction of the 2024 budget and proposed tax levy. I will have more in-depth comments during the formal uh, um, introduction of this item, but I want to start today by expressing my deepest appreciation for all the staff who spent countless hours over the last six months doing analysis, crunching numbers, creating presentations, updating materials, and responding to commissioner feedback, all to help to get us to today's formal introduction of the budget. Despite global uncertainty and significant pressure, pressures on costs, I'm proud that this budget reflects major investments in our core priorities, from infrastructure and development um, to community support, to supporting the community to environmental sustainability. Equally important are the investments that we propose to make in our port workforce who are truly our greatest asset. I look forward to hearing your feedback on our proposed budget. On our consent agenda, there are a number of items that demonstrate our continued commitment to maintaining safe and secure operations and being a good steward of our critical assets and resources. Item 8D is an action re related to improving security through our perimeter access gate enhancements and detection system, while item 8K is an action related to upgrading the Maritime Industrial Center office building infrastructure at Fisherman's Terminal. Finally, in two very important orders, 
You will hear a briefing on the status of our airport dining and retail master plan, the steps we're taking to improve our concessionaire RFP process, an important discussion of barriers to small businesses that are committed to addressing, that we're committed to addressing. I want to thank the great work of so many employees who will help make us think through this policy changes and process improvements to move us closer to our diversity and contracting goals. And I look forward to robust discussion of that item with you. Commissioners, this concludes my remarks. Thank you very much for that report out. Um, we are now moving on to committee reports. Erica Chung, the Commission's Strategic Advisor, will provide the report. Uh, good afternoon, President Cho, Commissioners, and Executive Director Metric. I have one committee report for you today. On November 14th, Commissioners Hasegawa and Fellman convened the Sustainability, Environmental, and Climate Committee where they were briefed on two topics. First is the AI Waste Pilot Project. Staff hopes to install six AI-enabled West waste sorting station with four at food course at the SCA terminals before Thanksgiving for the heavy travel season. Their interactive AI recognizes waste and can, can educate customers on proper waste sorting. The project is being implemented to support operational efficiencies and to help reduce waste. The second is the SCA land stewardship plan and SCA tree replacement standards where staff share that the plan and standards were developed in accordance with the environmental land stewardship principles uh, that was approved by the Commission on July 11, 2023. Um, that is comprehensive, integrates capital programs, applies an equity lens, builds on community partnership, and takes a holistic ecological approach. Staff shared land stewardship plan objectives and management approach. Tree replacement standards recommend a four to one replacement ratio using a holistic ecological approach for planting new trees, protecting exist, existing trees from invasive threats, and converting invasive areas to native vegetation can all be counted as credit towards replacement. This approach is consistent with the intent to conduct large scale replacement actions in the airport's ecological areas, which require holistic management to ensure replacement actions are successful over the long term. This concludes my report. Thank you. Excellent. Are there any questions for Erica or uh, Executive Director Metric? All right. Seeing now none, we are now on to the public comment section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in all its deliberations. Before we take public comment, let's review our rules for in-person and virtual public comment. Clerk Hart, please play the recorded rules. The Port of Seattle Commission welcomes you to our meeting today. As noted, public comment is an important part of the public process, and the Port of Seattle Commission thanks you for joining us. The Commission accepts in-person, virtual, and written public comment regarding matters related to the conduct of port business. Before we proceed, here are the Commission's public comment rules of procedure for your information. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak and should stay within the allotted time. A timer will appear on the screen and a buzzer will sound at the end of the two minute period for each speaker. The Commission reserves the right to receive comments specifically related to the conduct of port business. If comments are not related to the conduct of port business, the presiding officer will stop the speaker and ask that comments be kept to matters related to the conduct of port business. This rule applies to both introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the commission as a body and not to individual commissioners. 
Disruptions of commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of board business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior and language. Obscene language and gestures. Refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment. Leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment, provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk. And any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Any disruption will result in a speaker's microphone being immediately shut off by the presiding officer and a warning or loss of speaking privileges or removal from the meeting room may occur as provided in the commission's bylaws. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us today here in the meeting room. When your name is called, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself, then please repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. You may turn on your camera at this time. The two minute timer will then begin. If you're on the Teams meeting and at the same time streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. When you have concluded your remarks, you may again turn off your camera and mute your speaker. If you are speaking from the meeting room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name for the record, and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. Our public comment period will now commence. Thank you again for joining us today. All right, our first speaker is Alex Zimmerman. Hello, my name is Alex Zimmerman and I live in Bellevue for 35 years. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. It'll start when you're done introducing yourself. Could you please state your topic related to poor business? Mm, I don't understand how I can talk about a topic when you don't have time and nobody listens to this. Alex, please restate your topic, Okay, please. thank you very much. Yeah, topic is impeachment of Commissioner Chow. I talk about this many times before. Right now, more information come. What is absolutely critical is this exactly what is I want delivery. Time right now, very good. Couple points different. Point number one, you always interrupt me because I'm Jew, you support Iranian Muslim. By definition, everybody who support Iranian Muslim, we war right now with Iran, American and Jewish people war with Iran right now, I mean Israel in USA, so if you support us enemy in all countries in this planet, you're supposed to be qualified like a criminal, you're supposed to be going to jail or you're supposed to be executed. It's law what is exists in all countries on this planet. It's number one. Number two, election what is you win right now is absolutely not legal. Yeah, I will explain to you detail by point. First, you go to election alone. By definition, it's absolutely not. Alex, elections are not pertinent to, uh, pertinent to port, so if you could please go and talk about port-related business. Right now, don't interrupt me, please. 
So, he talk about winning. First, it's very important. 200,000 people no vote for him. It's people who involved in voting process. So, it cannot be 100 percent what is show and information about so he win 100 percent. That's number one. When we go to total people who in King Country, for example, you know what is mean, who can have vote, he's only half 15 percentage. It's absolutely critical, and he supposed to be recognizes, and he supposed to be doing something about this, because by definition it's a fraud, it's a federal crime. He cannot win by 100 percentage. Uh, Stop interrupt me, I see you in court. Thank you, Alex. And Alex, it's President Cho to you. Our next speaker is going to be Kathy Kennedy. She's online. Kathy, can you hear me? I sure can. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me. I am going to be talking today uh, in support of the accessibility efforts that the port um, has undertaken. And I wanted to let you know that there have been such significant improvements um, in removing barriers for all travelers with disabilities. And the airport has really worked um, very diligently with the disability community to ensure that they're learning what's most effective, what's needed, and what they really want. Um, and done this by doing really extensive outreach um, with many of the community groups. Um, it really all starts with uh, recognizing that accessibility needs to be universal for all people, all ages, and all needs. Um, it recognizes the difference between equity and equality, and it certainly works to level that playing field. I wanted to also speak um, a little bit about what the port has done um, for those groups uh, with non-apparent disabilities and certainly our older travelers, which is a growing um, concern as the population of the demographic, um, including our seniors, are traveling more and more and using the airport facilities. The Sunflower Lanyard Program, um, which is extremely popular in Europe, is a voluntary program, also a nonverbal way to communicate that someone has a non-apparent um, disability. The Sea Visitor Pass program is, is another just excellent program the port offers um, passes between the hours of eight and 10, seven days a week. It allows family and friends to sit with a person who may become confused, um, even if that assistant or family member is not traveling. There's a brand new sensory room designed specifically for the neurodiverse community as a place to help you travel in the hectic airport environment. Um, and I also want to mention that, that this is above and beyond what any regulation um, would require. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Renee. Good afternoon. My name is Renee Limoges-Reeve, and I'm here to speak about the cruise industry. I serve as Vice President of Government and Community Relations for Cruise Lines International Association, or CLIA, and I oversee our work in the greater Pacific Northwest region, which includes, obviously, Seattle, Alaska, Victoria, Vancouver, and California. 
as you know, CLIA is the largest um, member-based tra member trade association. We represent 95% of the ocean-going capacity, which is over 50 cruise lines, over 250 ships, and we transport 30 million cruise passengers each year to worldwide destinations like Seattle. It's a pleasure to be with you again today. I want to start by thanking the port commissioners and the port staff for your continued support of the industry here in Seattle. We value our long-standing partnership, especially when it comes to our shared commitment to environmental stewardship and innovation. As Commissioner Calkin shared a few weeks ago at our season wrap-up event, the 2023 cruise season was a record-breaking year, bringing 1.7 million cruise visitors to Seattle and contributing over 900 million to the economy. With this level of activity, the cruise industry continues to find every way possible to make our operations more sustainable and mitigate our impacts on the environment. To be clear, cruise ships do not discharge any wastewater in the Puget Sound. 120 CLIA memberships worldwide are currently equipped to connect to shoreside electricity, and between now and 2028, 88% of our global fleet will be plug-in ready. On September 6th of this year, I shared with you via email a press release and a link to CLIA's Global Cruise Industry Environmental Technologies and Practices Report. We recently expanded on this data in our Charting the Future of Sustainable Travel paper, which we will share with you as well. This shows significant advancements in the cruise industry's efforts to pursue net zero carbon cruising by 2050. The Port of Seattle has been a leader in shore power capability as the first port in the contiguous United States to offer shore power plug-in at Pier 91. Oh, we're proud to be your, your partner and your collaborator. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Renee. All right, next is uh, Lauren Van Horn online. Lauren, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, sorry. I'm Laurel it's it's Laurel. Horn. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I misread your name. That's Laurel, okay. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm Laurel Van Horn. I'm speaking on the topic of accessibility at the Port of Seattle. So thank you for this opportunity. I'm the director of programs at Open Doors Organization, which is a disability nonprofit based in Rosemont, Illinois. I'm also a proud member of the Seattle International Airport Accessibility Advisory Committee, having recently replaced our executive director, Eric Lipp, on whose behalf I'm speaking today. Uh, at Open Doors Organization, we have worked closely with the Port of Seattle for many years to help the airport become one of the most accessible in the nation and indeed in the world. We hope that the Commission will vote in favor of making accessibility an ongoing commitment and an integral part of the Port of Seattle brand. Congratulations to everyone at the Port leadership and staff who have supported all the improvements to accessibility thus far. And Kathy Kennedy, of course, just mentioned a number of those which are important. At Open Doors Organization, we pledge our continued support of your important work and look forward to helping you achieve an even greater level of inclusion and access so that all travelers, whatever their age, size, or ability, can enjoy a truly barrier-free and equitable experience in your facilities. So thank you very much again. Thank you very much, Laurel. Uh, and last but certainly not least, public commentator uh, Harold Uglis. Hello, my name is Harold Uglis. I'm current president of ILW Local 19. I want to thank uh, Chief uh, Executive Director of Metric and Commissioners allowing me to speak, and I'm going to be speaking about the cruise ship industry. 
Um, we just, as you heard from the previous speaker, we had a very successful cruise season. Uh, we want to thank the port for their foresight and uh, pushing for cold ironing for next year and increasing the number of ramps available so that we can hit the 100% cold ironing by 2030. It's a goal that I think we can uh, achieve, hopefully even sooner. The big thing that I'd like to also stress is the importance of the amount of jobs that this direct jobs that ILW members receive off this. One of the largest vessels this year calling up Pier 91, we had 169 members dispatched to work on that ship on one vessel. Um, at Pier 91, generally during the weekends, they have two ships at a time. It's an average of around 282 members that are dispatched to work those. And then along with Pier 66, example of the Norwegian Bliss, we have 138 members working on that ship. So you can see that we vary sometimes all the way, almost up to 450 jobs uh, on those vessels. And talking with the cruise industry, it looks like we're gonna have bigger vessels, more manpower, and as you all know, that uh, the wages that it brings in is tremendous. And then the, all the other jobs, uh, as far as from the tugboat operators to the ship handlers, to the people who supply it are very important to our region. So again, I applaud that. We push the cruise industry to be a green industry, and I think they respond very well. Cold ironing is one of them, discharging wastewater, and also being good citizens up in Alaska. We think that's very important, and we want to make sure that they, that they remain. So thank you for your time. Have a nice day. Thank you, Errol. All right, that concludes our signups for today. Is there anyone else present or on the team's called uh, on the team's call or present in the room today who didn't sign up but wishes to speak and address the commission? If so, please state and spell your name and state the topic related to the conduct report uh, business you wish to speak out about for the record. All right, in that case, at this time, I'll ask the clerk to please give a synopsis of the written comments received. Thank you, Mr. Commission President, members of the Commission, Executive Director Metric. We've received three written comments for today's meeting. These have been previously distributed to you and will become a part of the public record. Kim Brian's rights in support of agenda item 10D, the SEA accessibility orders, stating that the work that SEA has been doing to become the most accessible and inclusive airport has made a positive impact in the community and has helped to make people feel more comfortable traveling through Seattle. Ryan Fox, member of the Accessibility Advisory Committee for SEA, also writes in support of agenda item 10D and also in support of the SEA Access Program, noting how travel can impact people in different ways when they have disabilities. Ryan states the importance of providing a space that works for a wide variety of travelers to make their way through the airport efficiently and in comfort. And then concluding with George Abbott, President and CEO of the Lighthouse for the Blind and member of the Accessibility Advisory Council, who writes as well to support agenda item 10D, noting the thoughtful efforts of the port and SEA staff to embrace equity and inclusion of visitors and residents with disabilities who use the airport and all port facilities. And that concludes our written comments today. Excellent, thank you very much. Hearing no further public testimony, we'll now move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. 
At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda items recovering items 8A, 8B, 8C, 8D, 8E, 8F, 8G, 8H, 8I, 8J, 8K, 8L, 8M, 8N, and 8O. Is there a motion? So moved. Second. Excellent. <laughs> Commissioners, uh, we have a motion in a second uh, please say aye or nay when your name is called for the approval of the consent agenda beginning with Commissioner Calkins aye thank you Commissioner Pelleman aye thank you Commissioner Hasekawa aye thank you Commissioner Mohammed aye thank you and Commissioner Cho aye thank you five ayes zero nays for this item excellent the motion passes thank you very much Moving on in the agenda, we have four new items of business today, new business items today. Clerk Hart, please read the first item into the record, and then Executive Director Metric will then introduce the item. Thank you. Our first item is actually 10A and 10B, consolidated for one public hearing, and I will read that into the record. 10A, public hearing and introduction of resolution number 3814, a resolution adopting the final budget of the Port of Seattle for the year 2024, making, determining, and deciding the amount of taxes to be levied upon the current assessment roll, providing payment of bond redemptions and interest, cost of future capital improvements and acquisitions, and for such general purposes allowed by law, which the port deems necessary, and directing the King County Council as to the specific sums to be levied on all of the assessed properties of the Port of Seattle District in the year 2024, and 10B, also public hearing, introduction of resolution number 3815, a resolution specifying the dollar and percentage change in the regular property levy from the previous year per RCW 84.55.120, providing for a 4.8% increase of the levy from $82,657,367 to $86,664,580. Commissioners, as you know, today's presentation is the culmination of our six months of hard work by you and our staff across the board. I'd like to begin my introduction of today's budget by highlighting our financial performance for the first three quarters of 2023. Passenger volume at SEA continues to rebound and is trending higher than 2022, and we expect to come very close to pre-pandemic volumes by the end of the year. On the maritime side, as you've heard today in the public testimony, the 2023 cruise season broke records with 291 sailings and well over 1.7 million revenue passengers. Airport non, not aeronautical revenues are anticipated to exceed the budget due to higher revenues in most lines of business. Cruise, fishing, commercial marinas, and maritime portfolio management are expected to exceed revenue targets as well. However, conference center volume is estimated to be down by 28% due to events and conference cancellations this year. While our overall performance is strong, we are in an era defined by economic paradox and geopolitical uncertainty. Within this context of global and local changes, it is more important than ever that we make investments to build a port of the future. Strong demand demonstrates the enduring need for the port's services. Forecasts indicate that 2024 should be the strongest year ever in the history of the airport and cruise passenger volumes. In fact, the port projects $1 billion in revenues for the first time ever in 2024. Despite this favorable outlook for the port, economic factors outside of our control, especially persistent inflation and global tensions, pose risks to our projections and our plans. 
In response, the Port is, making, is taking a strategic approach. We invest boldly where we can make the greatest impact today while ensuring that we have the financial resources for our longer term needs. We continue our global leading efforts on sustainability and equity in a way that supports the community and the environment while making our business lines more competitive and resilient. We are also supporting our workforce to ensure the recruitment and retention of the people we need to operate our gateways successfully. The 2024 budget makes significant investments in cost of living and pay for performance increases with a placeholder of approximately 7% on average for non-represented employees and we're also planning to fully implement our compensation project to ensure that everyone at the port is being paid appropriately for their role and experience. Our budget strategy is driven in part by our capital improvement plan, which we briefed you on later this year. We're proposing the largest five-year capital plan in our history, intending to spend $5.6 billion across our aviation, maritime, and economic development facilities and invest $210.4 million with the Northwest Seaport Alliance to ensure that our gateways meet the operational and sustainability demands for today and into the future. As part of our presentation, we will go over changes since our last briefing, have a summary of the proposed operating budget in the capital plan, present key budget drivers, sources and uses of funds, our proposed tax levy for 2024, a 4.8% increase for 6.7 million and we will finish and we will finish with a summary of our budgeting and equity initiative. Finally, I want to make I want to make sh sure to share my gratitude for everyone who has worked so hard so long to bring us to today's budget introduction. Commissioners, you have given hours and hours of your time during retreats, briefings and individual meetings to share your priorities, input and probing questions about how we strategically invest in our mission and vision. The port's finance staff worked for months with each department and division at a granular, le granular level to understand every new request for an FTE or program and balance it against the available resources and other needs. So here we are. So without further ado, I'd like to turn over to uh, Chief Financial Officer Dan Thomas, uh, along with Michael Tong, Director of Corporate Budget, Heidi Popchak, uh, Director of Aviation Finance and Budget, and Bukta Gesar, Senior Director of Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Um, so with that, Dan, we'll, I'll turn it over to him to begin, and then we'll look forward to answering any questions that you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, and good afternoon, Commissioners. If we could move to the first next slide, please. This is just an over, overview of the uh, items we're going to cover today. Again, you've seen much of this in the past, so we are going to fly at a fairly high level. Uh, next slide, please. So as Steve mentioned, we have started this process about six months ago in the early summer, so lots of briefings and discussions, including several commission retreats. Uh, we provided detailed uh, presentations of the division budgets in um, October as well as the central services budget in late September. And then we discussed the tax levy and plan of finance in late October. So that's when you receive some pretty detailed briefings. So today we're really gonna focus just on some of the changes that have occurred since you last reviewed the budgets uh, in the interest of time. So, and also there are plenty of additional materials in the appendix if you want more details. Next slide, please. 
So I'm going to turn it over to uh, Heidi Papachuk, who's our Aviation Finance and Budget Director, to talk about some of the changes that occurred uh, within the Aviation Division since you last reviewed their budget. Heidi? Thank you, Dan, and good afternoon, President Cho and Commissioners and Executive Metric and Port Staff. So as Dan alluded to back in October, uh, the Aviation Division, we mentioned that we were going to look at some of our expenses in the preliminary budget and partner with our Port of Seattle Accounting Financial and Reporting Group to assess whether some of those costs could be capitalized. And that had the commitment that we'll come back to the commission today to report back on on that work. And as a result, um, as you can see there, uh, our total revenues decreased by $7.6 million uh, with a substantive amount associated with our aeronautical revenues. And that decreased by a net of $7.4 million. So when we did the work with our accounting, financial and reporting group, we had a total amount of $11.4 million that could be reclassified for capitalization. And the aeronautical revenue portion was, um, that was accounted for in that $11.4 million. Also, the second bullet there, it was partially offset by the aeronautical share of $5 million added of budget contingency for O&M expenses. And I'll talk more about that on the next slide, but I, I definitely want to get to the non-aeronautical revenue decrease as well. So the next part with our non-aeronautical revenue decrease is we had some um, reductions in our ground transportation cost recovery, as well as reductions in our utility cost recovery due to lower allocated costs, and then a modest increase in our non-aeronautical space rent due to higher terminal lease rates. Next slide, please. So now moving on to the aviation operating expenses. So there is a corresponding adjustment to that capitalization uh, reclassification that I mentioned moments ago. So the total operating expenses decreased by 6.3 million. And so with that 11.4 million reduction that's associated with capitalization, we overall saw a reduction in our operating expenses, which is good news. And, um, and that also includes, as I mentioned moments ago, that we um, had $5 million of operating expenses added to the budget. And these are one-time requests that were initially submitted as we went through the budget process up to October and recognize that we had some really good requests, but we couldn't approve all the budget requests. And then we went back to work on this capital, capitalization um, topic and found that we had the $11.4 million that was eligible. And so we wanted to approve some of those budget requests that weren't approved earlier, but recognizing there are one-time requests that will assist the aviation division to advance in its numerous strategic focus areas. And so we've included in the appendix a potential listing of budget requests that we would like to utilize the $5 million 
budget contingency on. The next piece is that we essentially trued up the payroll expenses related to a um, labor group relating to the CPI that was published versus the assumption that we had in the budget process. So that equated to $72,000. And then we have some small adjustments associated with um, B&O tax and credit card fees. So overall, it's a good news story. Um, also to moving forward in our process of classifying uh, capital costs, we are going to continue to work very closely with our accounting financial reporting group as capital project scope gets further defined and so we can continue to ensure those costs are in the correct fund. So um, with that, that, that concludes my remarks on the two slides and I'll pass it back to you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. So looking at the non-aviation side, very few changes uh, since we last discussed with you. The one highlighted here is just a very minor uh, amount of salary uh, within PCS that was reclassified from capital to operating expense, $33,000. However, there were two new items that uh, were added to the budget and approved this week that have not yet made it into this slide uh, and will be reflected in the final numbers when we bring them back to you uh, next Tuesday. And just, so just to highlight these, we did add $50,000 of consulting services to the OEDI budget related to human trafficking and the language access initiative. So that's, that's a new item that just got added. And then we also decided, and Steve and others on the ELT um, have decided to add $300,000 for next year to, to complete the economic impact study update. It's been a number of years since we've conducted that, and uh, I think there's a strong feeling that it's time to, to uh, refresh those numbers and possibly even look at uh, layer, looking at a, the, an equity lens as we do that, that work. So that's an additional 300000 uh, that was not included in this presentation, but will be in the numbers we, re we review with you next week. Next slide, please. So looking at the overall budget highlights, Steve co covered some of this in his uh, opening remarks. Uh, so just to highlight again that our operating revenues have increased 7.3% uh, to uh, just a little over $1 billion. That does reflect a new record. First time uh, port operating revenues have exceeded $1 billion. So that is a significant milestone. Uh, operating expenses up 7.6% to $617 million. And then uh, NOI before depreciation is up 6.8% uh, to $406 million. So just a snapshot of the operating budget. Next slide. Uh, looking at some of the drivers, I'm not going to walk through this in detail. Steve did mention a number of these on the payroll side for non-represented staff. We're looking at an overall 7% uh, that was budgeted for next year, broken out as a about a 5% uh, cost of living increase, as well as 2% average pay for performance. Um, each uh, represented group have uh, budget assumptions related to wage increases based on their individual contracts. Uh, on FTEs, on staff full-time equivalents, uh, we added 16.7 uh, positions this year, so they roll over into next year and are then annualized for the full year. And then as part of the budget review process this year, uh, a total of 60 additional FTEs were added for 2024 to support the, the various objectives and uh, planning factors. 
and then overall we're looking at a 5% vacancy factor, factor that we put in the budget. I won't go through all the uh, other drivers. I think we've discussed these in detail with you with, when each of the divisions presented their budgets, uh, but a number of different drivers are leading to increased costs for next year. Next slide, please. We wanted to highlight community programs. Um, we do this every year. Uh, we're at just a little under $20 million invested in a variety in 17 programs that, as you can see, support uh, things like equitable economic opportunities throughout the region, healthy communities, and the environment. Uh, we just highlight uh, a number of them here. You're very familiar with our community programs. We have a few more slides uh, be, uh, after this. So this is just a, as a reminder of all the, all the great work that's going on in the community supported by the commission and our resources. Next slide, please. This takes a look at that $19 million of community programs and just breaks it out into the, the, the large buckets or categories of spending. As you can see, the, the largest three are in the equity, diversity, inclusion category, as well as economic development and then workforce development. That's where the largest proportion of our, our dollars are being spent. Uh, there are a lot more, there's a lot more detail uh, regarding these programs included in, in the appendix. And again, on the right, just highlights and dollar amounts associated with the major programs. And again, I believe the commission is quite familiar with these. Next slide, please. Uh, this just takes a different look at the community programs and uh, summarizes those that are funded by the tax levy. So some, but not all of the programs are funded by the tax levy. About $12 million are funded by the levy. And this table and slide uh, and graph just highlight those that are funded by the tax levy. So putting those tax dollars to work to support the community. Next slide, please. Steve also referenced the uh, capital improvement program. This table summarizes uh, that both for the 2024 budget as well as the five-year look. As you can see, as Steve mentioned, in 2024, we're planning to spend $842 million. And over the next five years, about $5.6 billion, probably the largest five-year capital plan in the history of the port. Uh, this does exclude the uh, Northwest Seaport Alliance contribution that the port uh, will be making towards uh, that program. Steve did mention that in 2024, we'll be funding $72 million towards the Seaport Alliance capital program and $210 million over the next five years to support activities related to the Seaport Alliance. And with that, I'll turn it over to Michael Tong. Thank you, Dan. Good afternoon, commissioners and executive director Metric. Uh, uh, next slide, please. So here's the uh, sources of fund uh, for 2024. We expect about two billion, um, you know, uh, sources funds, somewhat like cash. You can think of it that way. So about half of that, a uh, little bit over 48 percent of the fund came from um, uh, the operating revenues. And then the uh, uh, expect about 30% uh, from the proceed uh, to, uh, for the bond sales. And then the remaining, uh, uh, you know, you can see the detail. I, I won't go into the detail, but one, uh, the other item I do want to point out is the uh, tax levy. It make up about 4.3% uh, of the expected um, total sources of fund uh, for 2024. Um, next slide, please. 
In terms of the um, expense expenditure side, the users of fund, uh, we also expect about two billion, and then the biggest portion obviously go to um, the capital spending, as about a little bit over forty one percent, and then the operating expenses will take up about thirty uh, uh, percent, and then you can see the rest. Um, one thing I do want to mention is that the, when you look at the sources of fund and users of fund, about two billion. And uh, actually, you can see the uses uh, is a little bit more than the sources of fund. Uh, we do have a expected balance of about 1.7 billion uh, at the end of the year, so we still, you know, uh, will have pretty good cash balance um, at the beginning and expect at the end of the year uh, for 2024 as well. Next slide, please. And so uh, Elizabeth Morrison and um, Scott Bertram already briefed uh, you uh, on the uh, drug plan finance and tax levy in the last commission meeting. So I will be very brief uh, to highlight a few um, uh, key points here. Um, again, you know, the tax levy amounts approved it, uh, annually by uh, U.S. body of the commission. Um, and then the levy can be leveraged. Uh, by you, uh, by issuing more geo bonds, so that's really useful tool for us to um, use the tax levy uh, to leverage that. And then currently, the port use uh, uh, the uh, tax levy for geo bond uh, debt services, environmental um, immediation, uh, regional transportation, uh, and also invest in the maritime infrastructure, and also the, some of the company program that uh, then highlighted a little bit earlier. Uh, you can approve uh, the tax levy amount up to maximum uh, maximum amount, uh, which is about 115 million uh, in 2024, and stop proposing uh, 86.7 million for 2024. Next slide, please. And here's the kind of highlight of the overall impact. Uh, again, you know, the increase will be 4.8% uh, to 86.7 million for 2024. Uh, for a medium household, uh, we expect uh, to uh, pay about $90 uh, per uh, medium uh, household uh, in 2024. And then uh, overall, the post levy is only about 1.2% of the total uh, property tax levied in King County in uh, this year. We don't have the 2024 number yet, but the, for this year, the estimate is uh, 1.2 million um, for the portion. Next slide, please. And then here's the overall historical kind of information, provide you a little bit more perspective. Um, if you look at the light uh, blue bar, uh, we lowered the tax, uh, the levy uh, in 2010 and kept it that way for about six years and then lowered it again in 2016 for about and kept it uh, the same um, rates about or same amount uh, for three years and then gradually increased that uh, starting from 2019 and part of that is because we had lots of the support that I mentioned a little bit earlier for the complete program around that period we um, um, Increase quite a lot of those community programs, uh, so you can see the trend, and obviously for other use that I mentioned a little bit earlier as well. And then in terms of the the, the uh, dark blue line there, um, you can see actually for most part, you know, it's been going down, and then uh, especially compared to the 
you know, the high in 2012 uh, or 2011, 2012, so it's been going trending down, partly because of the excess value of the property in the county being going up in general. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Okta. Next slide, please. Thank you, Michael. Oh, here, sorry, uh, one, one last slide. Uh, I do want to apologize. The adoption of budget is not today. It's next Tuesday. Uh, but we, our plan is to file the statutory budget with the county by the end of this month uh, on uh, November 30th. And then we'll finalize the uh, final budget document and publish it uh, on the public website by December 8th. With that, uh, turn over to Buddha. Thank you. Is this, do I need to turn this on? It is. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Bukhtar Geyser, um, Senior Director of Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I'm here to present the equity spending portion of the budget that you've just heard. You'll be really familiar with all of these slides and the amounts because we've already presented them to you. Uh, but uh, it's amazing now that we're moving forward with a commitment to every time we talk about our budget, we also talk about our equity spending within our budget. Um, and this work, just as an introduction, uh, so just so you know, has already uh, received a lot of attention. And just this morning, uh, I received an email from Airport Cooperative Research Program, which is a program established by the FAA that they will be doing a case study of the ESAP tool that we've um, come up with um, and sharing it as a best practice of how to incorporate equity principles in decision making in airports with all other airports nationally. So thank you, Commissioner Mohammed, for your vision for this work. Thank, thank you, Executive Director Mitrick, for your leadership and all commissioners for your support of this. Next slide, please. So we started this work um, in 2023 with uh, your direction to look back for the last four years to identify our equity spending. And because we were looking back for four years, we wanted to really uh, have a way to look at dollars that were easily identifiable and measurable and also defensible. Um, so there are ways that I can see the, the, our definition and our criteria growing in the coming years, but we started with these three definitions of dollars that were directly invested in communities, uh, dollars that we invest in businesses and, and individuals to um, uh, enhance our own equity work internally or externally, and also the staff whose work are primarily equity focused. This is the area where I think we can really grow the numbers in the coming years because more and more port staff are, uh, are spending time doing equity projects. But again, because this was looking at the last four years, we looked at staff who in um, the Office of Equity, Workforce Development and Diversity in Contracting. And I think this number can grow again. Next slide, please. So as the second filter, filter if the, the, the dollars met one of the definitions on the first slide, then it had to meet one of these criterias. Um, these six criterias are ways that we are actually reporting out our spending. Um, they have to be advancing diversity, removing systemic barriers, programs that are, again, com uh, invested directly in communities, 
um, has a demonstrable impact in quality of life for BIPOC communities, intentionally designed to have an impact in BIPOC communities, and achieves our environmental justice goals. So one or more of these criteria is what we looked to be able to code the spending so that we could report out. Next slide, please. So uh, this is the, the way that we are seeing our equity spending growing over the last five years. Um, we conducted this uh, study in 2023, so we looked back at the four years before, and now moving forward, every year we'll be measuring our equity spending and, and adding to these numbers, and this dashboard is actually already available on our website and has been shared through press releases and available for everyone to be able to view. Next slide, please. Um, as a reminder, your direction was for us to look at equity spending only in our operating expenses. So none of these expenses includes um, our capital spending. Um, one more actually important information is that our WIMBY spending is not included in this. The reason for that is because those numbers are already being reported out to you and available. We, did not, we didn't want to double count those numbers. So the dollars that you see here are to advance our, our capacity to support WIMBY's, but actually not our WIMBY spending. Next slide, please. Uh, this is our criteria and our spending, and again, this dashboard is available on our website, and we'll be every year tracking this. You'll see how our community investments are growing or advancing diversity. Uh, I want to note that removing systemic barriers, I think that's certainly really interesting to see that number growing pretty dramatically from the, in the last few years, and that's because some of the examples of what's in, um, what is in that category is our policing assessment, our diversity in contracting staff, our EDI staff, um, and all of our accessibility program that you'll be briefed about today. So there's a lot of um, dollars that are in inside that uh, criteria that is actually we have seen grow a lot over the last few years. Next slide, please. Uh, this is specifically the amount of tax levy that is committed towards our equity spending. You can see that in 2020 and 2021, we supported a number of programs that, that were aimed at uh, addressing unemployment issues that, that uh, was directly caused by COVID, and those numbers really, really saw a jump in our tax levy spending in those two years. So again, we'll continue to track this and report out uh, so that we specifically know how much of our tax levy is defined as equity spending. And next slide, is that the, I think that might be the last slide, yes. Thank you again for this commitment. I'm really excited to continue doing this work and to be uh, sharing this information nationally with all other governments. So thank you, we're happy to answer any questions. Excellent, thank you uh, Dan, Bukta, and Heidi and Michael. Heidi, I hope the port's not paying for your private jet flight right now. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions uh, from commissioners to staff on this item? And then we'll open up the public hearing. Uh, Commissioner Hazagawa. Accessibility. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. We've heard most of this before, so I, you know, just a couple follow-up questions. I'm really excited about the update. $50,000 might sound like a drop in the bucket, but a little bit can go a long way, and I'm really pleased to hear that $50,000 has been dedicated for um, language access. Can you talk about that investment, um, and uh, was it a study? And I had requested uh, money for language access in the budget that originally was not incorporated um, as an outcome of our um, of the study that we've already done, an assessment that we've already done, um, so that we could actually pay for the top spoken languages for some of our resources. So any any insight you can provide around that would be really helpful. Yeah. So your question is how we plan to spend that fifty thousand. Yes. Uh, so we are currently. Um, conducting an assessment organization-wide. Uh, and the language access motion that we passed this year directs our office to come back to you in February of next year with the findings of that assessment. Uh, a couple of departments, uh, specifically external relations, uh, they did some scanning of their um, language uh, services spending and they already increased their spending for 2024 but our plan is to begin by uh, to develop a manual that could be used for all port staff to understand how to get interpreters or how to do translations what you know how to what are the languages what are the vital documents so our office really plans to use a consultant to do that work as quickly as possible very good okay thank you for that clarification that's that's an exciting piece of where the rubber meets the road yeah. um, and then my last question is um, in the last presentation I had asked if it would um, I well, I'd mentioned that as I you know I consider us as one of the primary audiences for this budget document that you present to us um, and how important it is for us as commissioners who represent community members with priorities to be able to see how our asks are represented. Will one of those new sections um, that are not yet represented in this include a commissioner ask section? I believe our plan at this point is to put some more information in the final budget document. So the document you have now that was released a few weeks ago is our preliminary document. And once we finalize the budget, we will update all the numbers for all the changes. And the plan is to put in some information there that does reflect the commission asks. Thank you very much. Yeah. Perhaps more in a narrative form, Commissioner, as we look at it. it just, But it will tell we're looking for that inclusion in there. All right, whoever's online needs to mute because we can hear the feedback from the commission meeting. Commissioner uh, Feldman. Oh, thank you very much for that uh, high-level summary of what is a very detailed document and all the work you've done to make that possible. Uh, one of the ways in which we can share with the public about what's in there is the budget and brief. And I know we've worked very hard together over the years to get it brief. And um, I'm just wondering, do we have, is there draft budget and brief out on the streets um, for, you know, the public's uh, distillation? Yes, it has been published on our website. I believe that's true. I saw something yeah, to that effect. Right. And again, just a, a kudos to all the folks who worked on it, from the public affairs staff to finance staff. I know commissioners had some input, the executive team. So I think that it's a really 
it's a quality product based on all that input. I, I think those are really valuable, although I've missed this one. And yeah. perhaps we can make sure that every all well, the commissioners get it maybe as a separate uh, file so it doesn't sure. get lost in the sauce. The only other uh, specific comment I have was when you look at the relative spending on uh, environmental programming, that it is um, remarkably small compared to the other programs. And it, you know, given the priorities we put on sustainability and certainly tout it, I'm just wondering if you can go back to that slide and maybe help me understand what's maybe not the, the included in that. The community program slide? No, the, um, the more. The equity criteria. Back further, um, before your presentation, there was, um, I'm sorry, I think it may be the slide. community program slides. I, I think it was in it was in the pie chart. Yeah. Um, but I think it was not just limited to it was environment relative to all the programs, not just the community programs. You're talking about slide. Um, it was earlier on. I tried 10? not to interrupt. The only pie chart oh. was on slide ten. This is it here. I'm I'm pretty sure there's another one. I think it was with green. There we go. Uh, that's the. This is just those that are funded by the levy. I got it. That's the. So, right. So 40k of that is from the levy. So, the. You know. I, well, I, I would say this is just a subset of all the ports environmental programs, um, and I don't know if anyone from my environmental is here, but there's a lot of other things that are doing that are being funded by the operating divisions. Um, that are environmentally re related, as you know, Sandy Kilroy's whole team, uh, all the work that they're doing. Some of that is captured here, but they have a lot of other programs, like the the, the green corridor, as an example, is not reflected here. Right. Well, the only other thing we're going to have that come up right after this yeah. is the discussion of our environmental liabilities. Yes. Which is an enormous number. Right. And we are specifically calling for it to come out of the levy. So how yeah, is that kind not of reflected there? Because this is our operating expense, so that we really high focus on the operating budget in these conversations. Uh, the uh, environmental uh, mitigation, the remediation liability is technically a non-operating expense, so it doesn't get the same visibility in uh, the, these um, presentations. But you're right, it's a big component. It's more like capital, it's, it's more of a deeper dive Kind of, it's not capital. That, I appreciate that distinction. It would be kind of good just to see maybe uh, another pie chart by capital. You know, yeah, we could provide more information like that. Uh, this is technically a non-operating expense, um, so it's a little bit of a unique uh, category, but um, we can certainly uh, break that out. It's not shared by any other programs. So that would be a, just a standalone type breakout. Well, it's a different section of our budget. It's it's a non-operating piece. We do have a slide in the appendix. Um, I'm not sure which. And if I might also, I, I do want to point out for the operating expenses. Again, the you know forty thousand there is just funded the portion funded by tax levy. The overall operating expenses for the environmental stewardship was uh, is. 20.1 million for 2024. So the, the overall is much bigger. And then on top of that, we also have the long operating expenses that you know, support the. And just for reference, so the non operating, the environmental remediation liability expenditures plan for next year are about $10.4 million. And you're going to hear more about that. And we're going to talk about setting aside $30 million. I, I just really yeah, that's appreciate just for 2024. Yeah, I just appreciate. That this is just a small slice. You're right. You're right. Whole, and and I just thought the levy was covering this uh, environmental and, liability. And it, and it does. And so I apologize. And Perhaps in future presentations, we'll maybe spotlight that component. Because I, I think it's I, one I of the great a, things important, it's an important can do thing. 
The port, nobody would amortize the kind of expenses we incur to get pollution out of the environment. Um, yeah. And so when you think about what, where your tax dollars go, this is a huge, a huge yeah. benefit the port brings. Very good point, and we will factor that in the future presentation. Yes. Yeah, just that, uh, Commissioner, I, I take Commissioner Fellman's point on that, um, is that perhaps, and I'm not sure, i got to look to see how we reflect that, the roll-up of all those different environmental programs, and one, that's what I hear you describing, how that could tell a, tell a bigger, a different story. I mean, that's always the thing with the budget of how you slice it and, and assemble it. Right, so I, I hear what you're saying about but the you know, Everybody says the environment, the, the budget reflects your priorities, and, and that, that looks kind of like a lower places, priority, yeah. right? If so you look it, at that slice. And I, I know that I'm trying to see it as a yeah. communication document. I saw Sandy had her hand up, but maybe that was already covered. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Dan, Dan answered it. Um, what was presented does not reflect our total environmental investments. It was really just a cross cut um, of the community and uh, OEDI um, overlay. So we'd be happy to to uh, show the total environmental uh, expenses to you. Thanks. Great. All right, well, if there are no further questions from commissioners um, at this time, I'll go ahead and open the public hearing on resolutions number 3814 and 3815. Each speaker has two minutes to address the commission. Clerk Hart, do we have anyone signed up to give testimony on this item? Who's still here? Mr. Commission President, we did have one person sign up. However, I believe they've exited the room. If you want to okay. call their name just in case they're in earshot or joined us virtually. Sure. Alex Zimmerman. Nope. All right. Your loss. All right. Having no additional speakers, I'll go ahead and close this public hearing and move discussion to the commission. Is there a motion to, re, uh, to introduce resolutions number 3814 and 3815? So Second. The motion was made and seconded. Commissioners, are there any additional questions at this time? Great. Uh, seeing no further discussion, Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. And let me just clarify for the record, this is uh, first reading and we will be passing the budget officially on the next Tuesday, or next Tuesday meeting. That's correct. That's correct, yes. Um, for the vote on introduction of these two resolutions, beginning with Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hosokawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Muhammad. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Cho? Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. Motion to introduce resolution number 3814 and 3815 passes. Um, this item will be back again before commission for full consideration and passage on November 21st. All right. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record. Uh, and uh, Special Advisor V. Nguyen will uh, then introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 10C, order number 2023-15, an order of the Port of Seattle Commission to establish an environmental legacy fund within the port budget and plan of finance. Good afternoon, commissioners. For the record, my name is V. Nguyen, Commission Office Strategic Advisor. I'm here with Tyler Emsky, also of the Commission Office, and Dan Thomas, Chief Financial Officer here at the port. We're here today to brief you on this item of new business. Uh, the Environmental Legacy Fund order. Um, I'd like to start with ground setting on this item. Um, PowerPoint, thank you. 
Um, the port century agenda goals four and six detail our vision to be the greenest and most energy efficient port in North America, as well as being a highly effective public agency. To advance our goal of being the greenest port in North America, we have objectives to reduce pollutants related to port operations or operations of our tenants, past and present. We also have objectives to work to, work to restore those habitats. To achieve our goal of being a highly effective public agency, financial stewardship is a value that will enable us to hit, our, hit other objectives, such as partnering and engaging with external stakeholders, to build healthy, safe, and equitable communities. Um, next slide, please. Uh, the Environmental Legacy Fund order before you today sets out to advance these goals and objectives set in the Century Agenda. The port, along with other potential responsible parties, participates in the cleanup of contamination from historic practices and operations. The port anticipates spending around $100 million on cleanup projects in the coming years. This order creates a financial planning tool for environmental cleanup so that we may build up resources in a predictable way. All right, next, next slide, please. So we just went through a global crisis that showed the incredible value of having strong financial reserves. The port maintained its economic activity during the pandemic because we were prepared. We want to bring that approach to the environmental cleanup planning. Establishing the Environmental Legacy Fund will allow us to raise revenue for these cleanups over time through the port property tax levy, instead of trying to collect all the money in a short period uh, through high levy increases. Setting aside funds for cleanup also gives the port increased flexibility to continue work on other important tax levy funded projects, like maritime capital improvement and economic development programs. This is a prudent planning approach. Uh, we will start the fund with 30 million in property uh, tax levy previously collected by the port. Next slide, please. Okay, so now we're gonna go ahead and read through the text of the order and read that into the record. Uh, the Port Commission hereby directs the Executive Director to create a dedicated environmental legacy fund with the following uh, properties. Uh, the environmental legacy fund shall be established within the Port's overall financial structure. Funds within this account shall, be, shall only be used for the purposes outlined below. Assets in the fund shall be used exclusively for costs related to environmental cleanup of contamination from historical industrial operations on properties acquired by the port and or prior port or port tenant operations. Eligible activities shall include environmental investigations, testing, analysis, design, cleanup, and monitoring for active sites as well as uh, initiation of similar activities for new sites. This fund will only include deposits of port property tax levy funds, additional funds used toward the port's environmental cleanup efforts, including but not limited to the port's general fund, contributions from third parties or legal settlements with those parties, insurance recoveries, and Washington State Department of, of Ecology grants will be managed separately but in coordination with expenditures from the new environmental legacy fund. Uh, four, the executive director shall re recommend a deposit of 30 million in property tax levy revenues into the fund to see the creation of this account. And five, uh, in subsequent years, the executive director shall make an, a, an annual recommendation through the budget process about, designation, uh, about designating additional increments of property tax levy dollars to be deposited into the fund. With that, we are thankful for Dan Thomas to join us for any questions you may have about, the, about this order and turn this back over to Commission President Cho. Excellent. Thank you so much both uh, to V and Tyler for that excellent presentation and your terrific work on this. I'm glad both of you were able to present to us on this. Any questions from commissioners of staff and or Dan Thomas regarding the Environmental Legacy Fund? Commissioner Calkins. 
Uh, mine is just to say thank you for uh, a lot of work on um, what I think, you know, sort of gestated back six months ago um, mm -hmm. at the um, outset of our budget process is sort of an idea for fiscal responsibility and ensuring that, you know, there would be no financial impediment to our ability to, to fulfill our responsibilities. And I know your team was kind of lead on that. I know legal had a lot to say about how we crafted it to make sure that um, we were good stewards of, of uh, public resources. And also just to, um, you know, from what was kind of a, a very, very raw draft idea to what I think is a very solid example that honestly other public agencies should follow as we move forward. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins. Anyone else? Commissioner Hazegawa? Thank you. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, to clarify, we will make an initial $30 million deposit into this account to establish the fund. And then how frequently will depo subsequent deposits be made? Our plan commissioner is to actually bring this to the commission every year as part of our plan of finance and tax levy discussion. So as staff analyzes our, our, our forecasted needs and resources, they will uh, try to identify if there are some additional funds that can be deposited, and it would be a recommendation to the port commission as part of that process in the fall. Does this fund preclude contributions from any other sources besides the tax levy? Our recommendation is to keep it uh, limited to the tax levy because that is the primary source of funds that we use for environmental uh, uh, mitigation and, and remediation liabilities. The tax levy does have some additional restrictions on it that other funds don't, and our, our preference is to keep those other funds um, unrestricted for other purposes. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Any other questions for the commissioner? Commissioner, uh, for commissioner, for David, go ahead. Fred for Dan, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, I have two questions. One is the um, sort of following up on Commissioner Hasegawa's question. It strikes me that um, that the uh, the funds collected from uh, either insurance recoveries from cleanups that we've incurred or legal settlements that are specific to the project at hand, that those funds, you know, cleanup should pay for cleanup, right? So if we're going to get a refund, shall we say, on expenditures that incurred associated with that, shouldn't those monies be prioritized to be put back in rather than the levy? Well, our practice has been to put those recoveries back into the general fund, again, because that is a totally unrestricted um, source of funding that we could, it could be used for any purposes. And, you know, the, the uses that potentially came up the surface back during the pandemic was when we were um, uh, experiencing significantly reduced revenues you know if, if we if in a pinch we might have had to use some of those funds to pay debt service as an example revenue bond debt service we can't use the tax levy for that so our preference is not to commingle those funds because then they we, we wouldn't be able to access them for emergency purposes it doesn't say we can't use them for environmental cleanup activities but for this fund, uh, our preference is to just put tax levy dollars in and not commingle them with those other dollars. But it's tax levy funds that were used to initiate the cleanup and then to re do recovery. In some cases, some of these go back a long time, so it depends on the time period. But you know, more more recently, you're correct. But some may have precluded the time when we were using tax levy funds for cleanups. So actually, so my point is. I think not to commingle the funds is the point you're making, and I'm suggesting that 
funds that were used to initiate cleanup should be used to put it in the piggy bank. And so that, I think, is more to your point about not commingling. But, you know, the flexibility is one thing. I, yeah. It seems to me that the, you know, amount that you would put in in any given year, you know, your goal is 30 million or whatever, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you have to. But I, I certainly wouldn't want to preclude it. I mean, I guess it's not precluded in the, it says that um, are limited, but not, in, not, not limited to the port's general fund contribution to third parties, legal settlements, or other parties. So the f um, additional funds used towards the port's environmental cleanups include but are not limited to. So this would be allowed for, but your preference is for the levy. Right. We, yeah, and again, that can be part of the annual recommendation that we make to the commission. It's like we're, we're recommending we put these dollars in, but not right. these. Because like some so years we'll have like a windfall. Like some years we'll have a great possible, tax se right. a settlement. And it just seems to me if we can not burden the tax levy and do, you know, other societal good deeds with the flexibility of the levy yeah. rather than it just being the buffer. I, anyway, that's what I would like to see, that conversation. And then finally, I don't understand, um, I guess it's like the last sentence. How is it that uh, setting aside this money now, um, which is like I support, is a... Uh, provides more ability to continue pursuing other important tax levy funded projects. It seems to me you are setting aside this money and therefore having less flexibility. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that particular feature. Um, can, can I take a shot at that? Yeah, sure. I think it's something we, we talked about quite a bit, which is because the levy on any given year um, is a take it or leave it kind of thing, we can't retroactively go back and grab those funds. One can imagine a scenario when a liability bill comes due in which we need to tap into the levy that year, but for the fact that we've saved these funds that we can use in lieu of using levy funds in that given year for the environmental remediation. So it, it allows us to, it provides us with flexibility in future years to determine whether we're going to use levy funds or this environmental legacy fund to, to pay the bills that are due in that moment. Right, what I would say is that it provides us predictability and it, smooth, it doesn't create lumpiness in our spending of the tax levy because we're banking money. It's not, if, if one year we need to spend $50 million, that would be $50 million taken away from what we normally would take on an annual basis. But because we're banking it gradually, we don't have to take away from an annual tax levy funding. Does that make sense? I think your point about predictability is the punchline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so that way you can budget for not having that money because it's really it's, it's a lesser amount that you ultimately have to spend on levy except for in the future you then might have some unexpected larger expense. So right. it is hedging the future but in the meantime it's giving you, you can budget on $30 million less per year. And so I, I think the predictability value is really Mm -hmm. how you can budget around that, which is, I, I just don't think yeah. that is reflected as clearly as it might be in, in the, this is, is that the actual statement? It's, it's I think, just the statement in support of the order. So it doesn't change yeah. the order at all. And, uh, and, it, and the, my previous statement that it, it doesn't preclude us from using settlement monies, so um, right. I fully support this. Right. Great, thank, thank you so much. Any other, uh, Commissioner Mohammed. Um, I also want to say thank you for the proactive thinking around this. Um, maybe this question is for Pete Ramos. <laughs> 
for the benefit of the public, since we're talking about tax levy dollars and putting these dollars aside, um, the environmental uh, liability cases, how does that come to the public? When does the public get daylighted on, on that, considering the dollars that we are using are public dollars and those cases are, are environmental liability cases that the public will, would be interested in? Yeah, there is a whole uh, world of, of litigation and negotiation that goes on behind the scenes for these uh, legally mandated cleanup processes and there's many potential contributors to it and over time often they negotiate a resolution where they allocate costs and and ultimately the EPA may issue a consent order or the Washington State Department of Ecology may issue a cleanup order and that outlines for the public uh, who's doing the cleanup and that will come in front of the Commission for us to be able to take a vote on it before those dollars are used for any of those environmental liability cleanups uh, that is a good question. I'm not sure how much, uh, I'm not sure how you vote budget-wise for each of those cleanups. I'm not sure how that shows up in the budget, but. Well, I think next week, actually, there's gonna be an action item on uh, authorizing the expenditures for 2024 on the environmental cleanups. I think the, the specific projects are often kept confidential because they're oftentimes they're still negotiating with uh, PRPs and other. Uh, right, and the Environmental Remediation Liability Fund, you'll vote on next week next and it's Tuesday. a whole picture of the amount of funding for the year, but not saying we're doing this amount for X cleanup site. So once the negotiations are completed and a settlement has been reached, we can assume that it will come in front of the commission so the public could also hear. Well, yeah, that's a good question. I see Sandy Gilroy's on. Maybe she has um, some insight onto that. Well, I, I would just, uh, hello, uh, Sandy Kilroy, Senior Director, Environment and Sustainability. Um, so yes, uh, on an annual basis, the commission approves uh, the Environmental Remediation Liabilities Fund. Um, then, as, as mentioned, uh, as we enter into any agreed order, which dictates uh, our responsibility uh, to, to work on a project, the commission um, approves those. And then if we uh, contract out and consult for work uh, on these projects, as we often do, um, those budgets come in front of uh, commission for procurement. So those are kind of the three uh, touch points that commission approves um, our activities for, for the uh, cleanup work. Wonderful, thank you. We're always trying to be good stewards of public dollars, and especially when it comes to the tax levy do dollars in particular. So that transparency and accountability is important in this process. Thank you all for bringing this forward. Thank you. Yeah, Commissioner Feldman. I'd like to seek a little bit more clarity and following up with my previous question. So we, at eventual time, we have to approve spending whatever liability we have. So that's transparent. And then we get recoveries of funds through insurance and other things like that. I don't know, we don't have to vote on receiving money, right? So, um, so at the end of the year, uh, I'm just wondering, what is our net expenditure on cleanups? And then, and then we can make the decision, do you wanna, how much of that money do you want to put in the kitty for the environmental fund or not? So we can see, you know, some years we could be flush from a recovery and some years we won't so the choice about whether to put it take it from the levy or not would be best approved if we knew what our costs and recoveries were for any given year 
So we can certainly provide more transparency around that as part of that uh, autumn, you know, that budget conversation. We can bring that information forward as well. Yeah, and I was going to say, I think it is possible to have a roll-up like that. There is a lot of um, legal risk aspects and litigation aspects, and so that's why we also brief you in executive session about the ongoing liabilities and disputes that we have. Uh, and that's not as transparent, but I'm, I think what you're saying is a way to make it more transparent, but still protecting kind yeah, of as a roll-up. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, in the next year there will still be exposures that we'll have to deal with. But yeah. at the conclusion of this year, how much money we put in the environmental fund and from which fund mm -hmm. seems to be that would be because actually, in terms of stewards of the public fund, we get some good recoveries, right? And I think we should, you know, tout those things. So, but thank you for all the work. Sarah, is your hand is up, Sarah. Uh, hi, Sarah Jay, Director of Maritime Environment and Sustainability. And for the Commission's benefit, I might provide the example of T91, where I believe this year, through a, a, a number of different actions that have been before you, you've seen commissioners, you've seen um, settlements that we've accepted. And so you've got to see when we settled with parties what those dollars amounts were. You've also seen us come to you for requests for contracting to do studies and feasibility for cleanup for the 91 area. So in those ways, you start to see, and the public does as well, uh, what we're endeavoring to take on at a specific cleanup site. Just thought I'd uh, bring to light that as an example. Thanks, Sarah. All right, well, I'll just make some final comments here before we go on uh, to Executive Director Metric. But, you know, I also want to uh, echo the sentiments of the commissioners. Thank you so much for all the great work to both V and Tyler, but also to Dan and, of course, of course uh, Elizabeth Morrison, who I feel like is a, a total wizard at this kind of stuff. And the fact that we were able to conjure up $30 million through refinancing our bonds is just was just brilliant and uh, was very uh, pleased to, uh, uh, to be able to do that. Um, one thing I want to emphasize and make clear for the record is that uh, the Port of Seattle is already a leader in cleanup. Uh, let's not make any mistakes about it. Um, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this work is already being done, right? Uh, the cleanup that we're doing along the Duwamish, the East Waterway, et cetera. Um, and the other thing that I want to emphasize is that the establishment of this, this fund does not preclude any of that work that's already being done. Um, and, um, and, and it doesn't mean that uh, it changes anything that we're doing the present. Um, but we also know that uh, as long as the port of Seattle uh, as an entity continues to exist, that our activity will continue to impact the communities around us. Um, and um, I think this year during my presidency, I've really emphasized the idea of building the port of the future, right? And a, par a big part of building a port of the future uh, is making sure, making sure that we are planning today for the cleanups of tomorrow. Uh, which is why, you know, I'm so proud to be able to introduce this and establish this fund. I want to thank Commissioner Calkins for being the brainchild behind it. Um, you're right, it was really just a passing thought initially, um, but obviously you and I had some really great conversations and in, in how we can make this a reality. Um, and I really do think, um, you know, we are establishing this fund for the future, for future generations. Uh, uh, for your future kids, uh, for hopefully my future kids um, that I don't have yet. But, um, but uh, I think that you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, 
um, you know, when we're all retired from the Port of Seattle, we'll look towards this environmental legacy fund and find it uh, as one of the most meaningful and consequential things that we were able to do uh, because, as I like to say, we were skating to where the puck is going. Uh, and this is exactly the spirit of, uh, of you know, this pre my presidency this, this year. Uh, and I'm really, really grateful that uh, everyone was on board uh, for this. So thank you all. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins, for being a second on it. Uh, and, and, and with that, I will, uh, you know, kick it over to Executive Director Metric for any comments or thoughts. Thanks, Commissioner. I want to thank um, uh, Commissioner Cho, Commissioner Hawkins, and all the commissioners for their support of this or bringing this initiative forward and doing this. And I want to share my support for the order as well. Uh, uh, like you've already said, uh, fiscal responsibility uh, in that planning is, is core to how we approach our major costs, whether it's a large capital project or environmental cleanup projects. And a lot of those, uh, of course, are legacy projects by themselves because we've inherited that pollution. We didn't create that pollution, and that pollution was there when we inherited those properties. And so, and we have many financial tools to, that uh, make it able to meet our obligations, but it does send the strong me message of commitment that we're making this upfront investment of $30 million towards our known costs. I look forward to an annual, that annual conversation that we were just discussing about what additional deposits make sense each year based on the, the needed expenditures and available funds at that time, all of which we were just discussing. Uh, I want to make sure to give special thanks, as uh, President Cho has already done, to our amazing finance team, including Dan Thomas, Elizabeth Morrison, and Scott Bertram, and for their thoughtful strategic approach to managing our expenditures and ma matching them with the right revenue sources. I also want to thank our legal team, especially Elizabeth Black, for their incredible work at cost recovery that's already been mentioned as well, and from other, um, from other responsible parties. And of course, the maritime and environmental teams for everything they do on these projects to bring them to fruition. This is truly a team effort that we can all be proud of. And thank you, commissioners, for your leadership in creating this fund and look forward to its uh, consideration and passage. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? So moved. Second. All right. The motion was made and seconded. Clerk Carter, please call the roll for the vote. Thank you. Beginning with Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent. The motion passes. Congratulations, Thank everyone. You. Thank you very much. All right. Moving on to the agenda for our last item of the day on new business. Uh, Clerk Hart, please introduce the item, and then it will be introduced. Thank you. This is agenda item 10D, SEA Access Program 2023 Update and Order 2023-14, an order of the Port of Seattle Commission to affirm the Port of Seattle's longstanding commitment to developing Seattle-Tacoma International Airport as one of the most accessible airports in the nation and consider accessibility as a priority in aviation division strategy, facility design, construction, and operations. Commissioners, our evolving understanding of what accessibility means has inspired us to go above and beyond to accommodate the various needs of our travelers and visitors. From physical challenges like hearing and sight to less visible issues related to neurodiversity. The Open Doors organization assessments of SEA's accessibility was completed in March 2018 and it lists 108 recommendations to improve accessibility at the airport. 
Since that assessment, we have made significant progress and have completed many of the recommendations. This briefing will outline our progress and commitment to advancing the recommendations as well as providing next steps to making SEA the most accessible airport in the country. Uh, in addition, you'll also hear an order reaffirming your, our efforts on this front. And so the presenters are uh, Pete Mills, Commission Strategic Advisor, uh, Chelsea Rodriguez, Air, uh, Airport Volunteer and Access Program Manager, and Heather Karch, uh, uh, Architecture Manager, Aviation Facilities and Infrastructure. So, so I'll begin with you, Pete. Yes, uh, good afternoon. This is Pete Mills, Strategic Advisor to the Commission Office and staff to Commissioner Mohammed. Uh, Executive Metric, President Cho and Commissioners, this presentation will begin with the annual accessibility briefing uh, by Heather Karch, and, uh, who's the Architecture Manager at SEA, and Chelsea Rodriguez, who's the Airport Volunteer and Access Program Manager. Following their briefing, uh, I will return to introduce Order 2023-14 for your consideration. This order affirms the port's commitment to be one of the most accessible airports in the nation. Uh, but first, I'll pass it off to Heather for the briefing. Sorry, rookie mistake. <laughs> Thank you, Pete, Executive Director Metric and Commissioners. My name is Heather Karch, and I am the Facilities and Infrastructure Architecture Manager as mentioned, and current ADA coordinator. And with me today is Chelsea Rodriguez, the Airport Volunteers and Customer Accessibility Manager. Next slide, please. This afternoon, we are going to provide an update on the efforts of our interdisciplinary accessibility program. Travel numbers have been rebounding towards pre-COVID levels, and we're in the midst of extensive construction. So our focus on accessibility is especially important as the airport becomes more challenging to navigate and our aging population continues to travel. <coughs> Today we will provide a quick overview of our guiding principles along with updates on our three areas of focus, facilities, customer service, and engagement, and discuss next steps for 2024. Next slide, please. It is important to reiterate our guiding principles to ensure that our actions align with these goals. We continue to strive to be the most accessible airport in the United States by exceeding code-driven accessibility requirements and have a proven track record of being an innovative leader within the aviation industry. We continue to educate ourselves to ensure that we are forward-looking in all of our actions. These efforts align with our SCA brand promise of an elevated travel experience for all. Our accessibility program is organized around three areas of focus facilities, customer service, and engagement. While Chelsea and I are presenting today, our success depends on the work of many. Interdepartmental collaboration is critical to ensuring we meet the full range of our passenger needs, but just as important is the support of our community stakeholders. It is worth noting that past community feedback was instrumental in guiding our leadership's commitment to being the most accessible airport and aligns with the additional support we are requesting today. Next slide, please. We will start with the review of facility updates. Next slide, please. SCA has a very active capital program and it continues to grow with Upgrade SCA. During this time, we have the opportunity to integrate accessibility related features and amenities into new construction and renovations. In the past year, SCA opened a multi-user all gender restroom that provides additional convenience for passengers with disabilities 
added a new service animal relief area outside of GML Hall and additional baby changing tables to international arrivals facility. Some updates are at a smaller scale, such as adding cane rails to water fountains that allow us to update parts of our older facility to meet current standards until those areas are included in larger scale remodels. In the next few years, as restroom renovations, sea concourse expansion, and SEA gateway projects are constructed, we will be increasing the number of SARAs, the service animal relief areas, sensory rooms, nursing rooms, and adult changing tables. Next slide, please. One of our largest accessibility-related updates is the improved curbsides that has been in progress for multiple years. The upper or departures drive now has 17 passenger loading zones compared to the handful that previously existed. These loading zones are spaced no more than 100 feet apart and were purposely located adjacent to entry points for the convenience of passengers with limited mobility. The lower or arrivals drive is designed with zero curb, which aligns with universal design principles. SEA Gateway will be updating the ramps between the baggage claim level and lower curbside with ramps that are less steep, less steep and landings at the doors. The design includes an updated entry portal and signage to create more intuitive wayfinding into the building, as you see on the slide. Signage is a critical bridge between our operational needs and customer service expectations that informs the passenger journey. It is even more important as we continue to grow with upgrade SCA and deal with the impacts of construction. The signage team provides in-house design and installation resources for both static and digital signage and continues to find innovative solutions to address our accessibility needs here at SEA. One example relates to adult changing tables. There isn't an industry standard uh, yet for the symbology for this type of equipment, and our team provided a custom design solution, similar to what was done for the sensory room. The team helped improve digital parking guidance signage to direct passengers to accessible parking stalls, and they respond quickly to changes during construction to provide temporary wayfinding solutions while pushing towards a more digitally integrated solution for the future. Next slide, please. Chelsea will now share customer service updates. Great. Thank you, Heather. My name is Chelsea Rodriguez, and I am SEA's Airport Volunteers and Customer Accessibility Manager. And I'm happy to be here to share more accessibility program updates. As noted earlier, the second pillar in our accessibility program is customer service. We recognize that the passenger journey has many steps and we must focus on programs and amenities throughout that journey, as well as invest in our frontline staff. Recent program and amenity highlights that benefit travelers with disabilities and support our brand promise include, we created an accessibility brochure which details accessibility resources for travelers. We found that not all travelers want to download an app, um, so having a physical resource can be incredibly beneficial. Um, we also have a braille version with a tactile map. The brochure has been well received by travelers and by staff alike. Another highlight is our Embrace of the Sunflower Lanyard program, which is a resource for travelers with non-visible disabilities where they can choose to optionally wear a lanyard that's complimentary, and it lets our frontline staff know that the wearer may need additional support or patience or flexibility. It is a growing um, initiative at a number of airports, both nationally and across the globe. 
At SEA, we have expanded um, where lanyards are recognized, as well as fine-tuned the distribution model, where travelers now receive more of a polished package, um, we call it a sunflower lanyard kit, which better informs on the breadth of resources that we have for travelers with disabilities. And then a final highlight to note is our investment in our airport volunteer and CPUPS program. And the CPUPS are our animal therapy teams who focus on relieving stress and anxiety for our travelers. Along with our general volunteers, the CPUPS help all travelers, but we have found that travelers with disabilities, for example, anxiety or PTSD, have especially appreciated our furry volunteers. Next slide, please. As previously noted, we recognize that the travel journey has many steps. For many, that journey begins prior to stepping inside the airport. The website is a very important pre-travel resource that can help travelers prepare for an upcoming trip. Our friends in external relations have systematically taken steps to ensure that the website is updated and adheres to digital accessibility standards. This work is ongoing. And within the airport terminal itself, the customer service team is close to launching a new initiative called Customer Care Connect. And this is where, using a QR code, uh, travelers can connect with a live customer care agent via their phone, similar to FaceTime. There's also a texting feature that would be beneficial to deaf travelers. And to better inform the disability community and community at large, again, our friends in external relations have made accessibility a focus. Highlights of their work to better inform include accessibility-focused blogs, a checking-in video with ASL captioning, and paid advertising on local television and on social media. And the image on this slide is an example of one of the social media um, ads. And this is all to better inform on the breadth of SEA's accessibility resources. Next slide, please. Investing in our programs, amenities, and communication is important and so is investing in our frontline employees and volunteers who provide critical customer service. This year, we have focused on partnering with disability experts. Examples include deaf-friendly customer service workshops led by deaf-owned business, deaf-friendly consulting. Um, another workshop titled Support Strategies for People with Developmental Disabilities, um, which was led by Arc of King County, a local nonprofit, actually a national nonprofit, but the local uh, chapter um, is leading that workshop. And both of these workshops are led by trainers with disabilities themselves, and they provide actionable steps for staff to then apply on the floor with travelers. We're also updating our excellent customer service for travelers with disabilities e-learning, which is available to the entire airport badge holder community. Finally, taking a holistic perspective, we recognize that just as we need to focus on training to our frontline staff, we also need to ensure that excellent customer service is recognized. Our High Five Customer Service Recognition Program is this vehicle. These in-person celebration events have consistently highlighted staff who already provide excellent customer service to travelers with disabilities and in turn deserve recognition. Now, um, next slide please. And I will pass it back to Heather who will share more about our third pillar, engagement. Thank you, Chelsea. As we previously mentioned, our accessibility program is organized around three areas of focus. And while all are important, engagement is where theory meets reality. Next slide. Oh, oh don't stay right there. Okay. Uh, 
Engagement is how we learn firsthand from people living with disabilities how our decisions can impact their travel experience. We support the idea of nothing about us without us and reflect that with our SCA Accessibility Advisory Committee and additional one-on-one -on -one outreach. The committee meets quarterly with additional meetings as needed and continues to be a valuable opportunity for engagement with community stakeholders. For example, last summer we conducted facility audits of concourses A, B, C, D, main terminal, baggage claim, and levels three and four of the parking garage. While our quarterly meetings are virtual, the audit was in person and we physically moved through the space to observe conditions. The feedback from the audit directly led to changes being implemented in the facility and in our design standards. While our committee members commit to a specific term limit, their impact can be felt for multiple years. While the term limit provides opportunities for new voices to be heard as we recognize a need for a wide range of voices that represent the disability community. As I mentioned before, our success is built on the collaboration with others and I want to take a moment to recognize our past and present committee members for the time and wisdom they have shared and the value they bring to our organization. Specifically, Cindy Laws and Eric Lipp, who have played key roles in our development over many years. Looking forward, I'm happy to note that the Port of Seattle is a co-sponsor of the Universal Access and Aviation Conference in September of 2024. This conference is organized by Open Doors organization and is an opportunity to meet and learn from accessibility advocates and disability groups from around the world. We are excited to be a part of this event. Next slide, please. In addition to engaging with disability stakeholders, we have been fortunate to represent SEA through participation in panels and presentation at multiple national and international aviation industry events, including the FAA National Civil Rights Training Conference, Airport Marketing and Communications Conference, Passenger Terminal Expo, Airport Customer Service Experience Symposium, and IATA World Passenger Symposium. We are fortunate to also be invited to participate in industry working groups, including TSA working group and upcoming ACR panel reviews. Now, Chelsea will conclude and share next steps. Great, thank you, Heather. As we look towards 2024, we know the work continues. Next slide, please. And one such exciting development is the launch of SEA Access, which is the new name for SEA's accessibility program. To better inform on the breadth of our accessibility amenities and resources, we have worked this past year to develop this program name and the logo that you see here. We want to acknowledge our Accessibility Advisory Committee as they have been involved every step of the way to ensure that the program name and logo will resonate with the disability community. In the coming months and beyond, in partnership with external relations, we will increase our focus on outreach and engagement to widely promote SEA access. Our aim is to build upon the important work that has already occurred to better inform travelers with disabilities, with the ultimate goal of supporting our brand promise of an elevated travel experience for all. Next slide, please. Now I will open it up to questions and after the questions, Pete will introduce the accessibility order, which we feel further reinforces SEA's accessibility commitment and will aid our work. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for those presentation, uh, for the presentation, Chelsea and Heather. Any questions? Oh. Yeah, Commissioner Feldman. Thank you for that and it's a really great thing to be able to be 
a national leader in this effort. So I was just wondering, um, is there a uh, number of, how many people are on this accessibility committee? You know, I believe at the moment it's 20. Yeah, I would need to confirm, but it's around in the early 20 range. And are their meetings open to the public? As of now, they're not. We do them quarterly, and it's been virtual. And so, um, and is there a charter on term limits? There is. There is, but there is no way for the public to monitor it. To monitor yeah, the... Yeah, to be able to observe the deliberations of the group. Presently, we haven't done it that way. Yeah, we've had um, quarterly meetings that typically have been virtual, and they've just been for the people on the committee. And, and so you said you're going to do more work in public outreach. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's an opportunity to do more to share with the broader community, not just necessarily the target audience, of course, would be the right. disability community, but obviously we have folks in the community that are very much interested mm -hmm. in advancing the cause. Mm -hmm. I would like to hear how you might help address those interests. Oh. Thanks. Um, uh, I mean, what we've established so far, uh, we did, uh, this committee has had multiple iterations. Um, I've been with the port for seven years, um, but I know the committee has existed prior to that, and uh, it was during COVID that we restarted the committee, and we used, uh, we actually did outreach to multiple other airports mm -hmm. that had committees um, to do research into precedence of what were best practices and lessons learned. Different airports have different strategies for, uh, you know, the time limits, duration, how, how open they are. So we chose to go with an invited-only uh, method, but I think that's something we can reevaluate. If opening up um, access to the meetings is something that the commission feels is important, um, we, outside of our quarterly committee meetings, we do have one-on-one -on -one outreach with additional disability groups, whether it's um, self-led or just the out of people approaching us. Um, we just met with Miami's airport uh, this week, actually. Um, they reached out to us to get some lessons learned on things they can do to improve or asking for guidance. Um, we've had a lot of outreach just to individual groups when we, you know, we hear something new that we want to learn from them, or if they reach out asking to talk to us. I, I think we have a lot of options, and what we've done to date is just been based on the research and what we feel comfortable with. You know, this team, it is interdepartmental in the sense that we rely, Chelsea and I lead the effort, and my future ADA coordinator will, will replace that role for me. Um, but it really, right now, it's a team of two. You know, we, we work with other departments to implement all these initiatives. Uh, so it's, it's also what we can handle in terms of being successful um, in that role. So do you have anything to add, Chelsea? No, um, it's a suggestion that we can look into exploring. It's a big group like that. It's obviously hard to manage, and I, I appreciate that. I, I see the, um, the analogy with the PSRC, you know, Growth Management Board. It's a cast of dozens. And, um, but it does provide an opportunity for public comment and mm -hmm. observation. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, broad interest in mm -hmm. growth management as there is broad interest in 
ADR related, I mean, uh, access issues. So I, I urge you to think about mm -hmm. ways in which, especially if you're doing it remotely, it seems like mm -hmm. it makes it uh, more accessible, so mm -hmm. to speak. Great, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Hazagawa. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering why there's no dollar amount associated with the ask. You think that there'd be um, something associated with program management or supporting the committee or implementation? Why, why no funding request? Commissioner, I can step in. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's two act, there's two items, uh, and one is an action item. The, this is just a briefing you about the, the activities about. of the, uh, and it's an annual briefing uh, mm -hmm. that Heather provides. And Chelsea. Mm -hmm. um, the, the order will be following, uh, and it also does not have a dollar figure attached to it, uh, uh, but it is just a, a more of a policy statement. Okay. And then how accessible are these accessibility programs? I mean, I does one, like I'm thinking about the customer experience ribbon. Uh, so if somebody who is differently abled shows up and mm -hmm. I'm looking at your examples of the Sunflower mm -hmm. program or the See the C Pups, mm -hmm. the SEA Pups, do they have to arrange for that ahead of time? Do they show up on site and realize it's a service to them? I mean, anecdotally, I've never, Perhaps because I don't have an eye for it, but I've you know never seen um, some of this. You know, so. well, I I think that's a big reason why we are going to be launching the SEA Access Initiative as far as branding the program, so we can better communicate on the initiatives and resources that we have. And as far as the CPUPS goes, um, that is something that we're investing in more. Um, Part of my role is our volunteer program, and so we're very eager to grow the CPUPS program so we can ensure that there is some consistency to when the dogs are available. But we have branded materials that we didn't have a year ago, um, and even a name. They didn't have a program name. Now it's the CPUPS, which everyone seems to love. And we have banners, and we have trading cards, and we have um, a beautiful mats, so it is more visible to the public. Um, and presently, a big way we promote is through our website and um, through the brochure that I mentioned as well, and then through working with external relations. Um, and certainly, more work can be done to ensure that we're getting the word out to the community. And as far as the sunflower lanyards, um, those are accessible at our information desks. And then um, if an information desk is unstaffed for whatever reason, we've also partnered with the staff that manage our checkpoints, so they're available there as well. Okay, just to go back, I mean, I, this is, I understand there's two pieces, there's a program and the, there's an order, but I'm just really surprised that we're acting on a program without funding it. I just, I, I still don't understand fully why that's happened, why there's no funding associated with it. Somebody help me make this I, make I sense. They operate, uh, there's two budgets, one's capital and one's operational, and the operations budget funds much of their programs. Uh, with Heather being the architect, uh, the capital budgets uh, dictate some of the spending that she does. So those are the primary categories that are, are devoted towards these areas. Uh, perhaps Heather has more, or? I can add to that if that's well, Executive Director Metric. 
If I can just answer, I believe it's funded through the budget. I mean, because the, the program is funded through the budget okay. request. So there you have it. that's where the, the funding is. So you don't need us to take additional Don't need a separate there. action on the Thank budget. Thank you for that. So, unless so there was, was something that grows up to then approval, <laughs> it's funded through the budget, and then it comes up if there was an action that rolls okay. to the level for the commission. Any other questions? Oh, Commissioner can, Yeah. Um, well, to add to that a little bit, I think the goal of today was just to bring this as a commission order to set policy because there hasn't been an accessibility policy from the commission office. And setting this policy will actually help this team when they're going after federal grants, state grants, and are looking for additional dollars. So it shows a full commitment from the commission that we support accessibility. And I just want to say thank you to Chelsea and Heather and the entire Port staff that's been working on this. Also, uh, Director Lance Little, I know he's a huge supporter of this body of work. Um, and it's, it's, it's great that we're able to move this forward from the commission side and, and continue to support the great work that you all are doing. Um, I also had an opportunity to meet with the members of the Port Disability Advisory Committee, and um, they're a great group. Um, and one of the, the takeaways for me was, um, one, they're, they're framing around nothing about us without us. They truly believe that and are pushing that on um, through the work that's happening at the port. And also, they were, you know, one of the things that I wanted to suss out as we were bringing this commission order is what more could the Port of Seattle be doing? And it was very clear that they were all saying that we are a national leader. You all are a national leader in the work that is happening at the port and that they feel like they often use us as an example when they're talking to other airports. And so that's, that's excellent work. Um, uh, I look forward to the, the order being introduced. And also we're making investments on the language access side. So as we're doing these talking about um, signages, how do you incorporate that for someone who is disabled and maybe English is not their first language, what does that relationship look like and how do we also promote that? So I look forward to the, the good work that you all are doing and will continue to do. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Any others? Okay, well, Peter, I think it's your turn. Thank you, Commissioners and, and Heather and Chelsea. Again, this is Pete Mill, Strategic Advisor for the Commission. Uh, I would like to introduce Order 2023-14, affirming the port's longstanding commitment to be one of the best and most accessible airports in the nation. The text of the order is as follows. The Commission affirms the Port of Seattle's ongoing commitment to construct and operate SeaTac International Airport, SEA, as one of the most accessible airports in the nation, and that facility meet, meet or exceed des, uh, designs and considerations outlined in the Americans with Disability Act. The Port hereby directs the Executive Director to expand his interpretation of the Port's, uh, Port of Seattle's century agenda goals and objectives, including but not limited to Goal 5, become a model of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and goal two, advance this region as a leading tourism destination and business gateway to, to reflect this formal commitment to provide prioritized accessibility considerations in areas including SEA facility design, operations, and ongoing community engagement. Including in this commitment is to ensure accessibility of our conferences, events, and sponsored events uh, by utilizing 
remotely available digital conference or meeting options when available. As you've heard from uh, Heather and Chelsea, the board has a long history of incorporating accessibility improvements into our facilities and operations from implementations, uh, implementing requirements of the Americans Disabilities Act of 1990 to the Open Doors Report that Commissioner mentioned in 2018 to the language access order that Commissioner Mohammed introduced this past spring and commission passed. Uh, as you've heard from, uh, and as you've heard from Heather and Chelsea, we continue to improve on our accessibility work. This order uh, was discussed at the commission's aviation committee and just last month, as you heard, Commissioner Mohammed met with the board's disability advisory committee to hear their perspective. The intent of the order is to make official uh, policy that many have assumed is already long-standing policy. Uh, thank you very much. This concludes my uh, my introduction of the order, and the three of us will be available for any additional questions should there be any. Great. Thank you, Pete. Any questions for staff at this time? We'll start with Commissioner Mohammed. No questions. Just again, thank you so much for the work that you all are doing. Excellent. Commissioners? No? No? All right. Straightforward. Thank you so much for this great work. We really appreciate it. And um, with that, I will uh, open and entertain a motion and a second. So moved. Second. All right. The motion was made and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Thank you for adoption of order number 2023-14, beginning with Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you, Commissioner Hoskawa. Aye. Thank you, and Commissioner Cho. Aye. Thank you, five ayes, zero nays for this item. Excellent, the motion passes. Congratulations, and thank you, Commissioner Mohammed, for your work on this accessibility order. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. Moving on to item 11, presentations and staff reports. Clerk Hart, please read the next item into the record, and Executive Director Metric will then introduce it. Pretty sure this is the shortest reading all day. 11A, ADR program briefing. <laughs> Commissioners, our airport dining and retail program, otherwise known as ADR, is not only a key driver of non-aeronautical revenue at our airport, but is also the first and last impression we get to make on our customers traveling through our gateway at SEA. The attention to customer service and the quality of offerings provided through this program are critical to elevating the customer experience. The ADR master planning effort that the staff has recently completed reflects our commitment to creating a Pacific Northwest sense of place at SEA and holds true to our values of equity and inclusion, as well as our focus, as well as our focus on providing opportunities for small and diverse businesses. This presentation will provide insight into, into what is next for our ADR program, as well as key changes we have already made to improve the, the application experience for those businesses. And at the end of the presentation, I'll provide my recommendation for policy changes that bring us closer to our goals. Before I turn it over to staff for the presentation, I'd like to acknowledge the incredible work of our, of our diversity and contracting team led by me and Rice to increase opportunities for small businesses. In 2020, the commission adopted order 2020-19, which directed a study on barriers facing BIPOC and WIMBY businesses at the port. The diversity and contracting team procured the services of an outside firm to conduct this study. The study was released in 2023 and identified nine general barriers. 
However, upon release of the study, critical feedback was received regarding how various perspectives were represented, particularly ADR tenants. The recommendation that I'll make towards the end of, at the end of the presentation today reflects additional outreach conducted by port staff to capture the voices and perspective of additional small businesses, tenants, and applicants. Much of the credit for the success of our ADR program goes to our next two presenters today, and that is uh, Jeff Wolf, Director of Aviation Commercial Management, and uh, Kalia Moore, Senior Manager of ADR at, uh, at the airport. So with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Jeff Wolf. Jeff. Great. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Commission President Joe, Commissioners, Executive Director Metric. Uh, as was mentioned, I'm Jeff Wolf, Director of Aviation Commercial Management. I'm joined today by our Senior Manager of Airport Dining and Retail, or as referenced, ADR as we call it, uh, Kalia Moore, who will be uh, talking to us and giving us the majority of this briefing today. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, our ADR team. Uh, we have actually a member here as well, uh, Scott Van Horn, uh, in the audience and others that are, that are joining on the call, hopefully. I just want to say thank you to all the hard work that goes into this program. It's very complex, as you know. We have many relationships at the airport with business partners, and it takes a lot of oversight. So I really want to say thank you to the ADR team. Uh, there's going to be two main components to this briefing today, uh, as Executive Director Metric touched on. Uh, the first is what we call the master planning process. We really look back to, really look back to 2014 as kind of the start of that master planning. It's really when we had a redevelopment program in place, and it in incorporates the various lease groups that we've had since then. Uh, so we'll touch on those and the processes we went through, but also, almost more importantly, is the learnings that we had from those lease groups to help inform us uh, for the second main component of this briefing, which is specifically related to the Concourse C expansion project, which is extremely exciting, but we want to get it right because it's one of the last main opportunities that we have for new space at the airport for a little while until we have op uh, future opportunities come online. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, we're very excited for this project. You may recall that um, back on September 26th, you authorized uh, the final uh, construction cost of $399 million uh, for the project. Um, and so you know, we expect to be back in front of you, uh, depending on this discussion today, our intention is to be back in front of you uh, in about a month on December 12th for authorization to move forward with the RFP. Uh, to actually proceed with the, the dining and retail components of the Concourse C expansion. Um, on a personal note, I've been with the airport for just about 20 years, and there's been some extremely exciting projects that we've had. We have our Concourse A expansion, you know our central terminal project, more recently, just in 2021, uh, the North Concourse, all provided some just fantastic new dining and retail opportunities for our passengers. Um, but in my time, I think I have to say that this Concourse C expansion is probably the most exciting. Uh, we look at the layout of, of the new building, we look at the amenities that are gonna be part of it, and I just think it's an incredible opportunity that we have in front of us. So I wanna thank you for your support for the project, and I also am excited for proceeding with our uh, RFP process as well. Um, as you know, uh, SEA is a Skytrax four-star rated airport, and we're very proud of that. We should all be very proud of that. Um, but it doesn't stop there. We want to move to a five-star. And Concourse C expansion is one of those projects that I believe, and I think aviation staff in general believes it can help get us there. 
Uh, so as part of this briefing, again, you'll be hearing about the learnings that we've had you know, over the past lease groups. Um, there's been a variety of, of inputs that we've had, including uh, tenant feedback directly, um, lean process improvement that we went through, uh, learn, learnings obviously from previous lease groups and uh, RFPs, and then as was mentioned in the introduction, uh, more recently the, the barriers to entry study, which helped inform us of you know, where can we improve to make this process better, especially on the small business side. Um, so on that, you know, what we're looking to discuss today is, you know, what can we do in terms of the structure of the RFP to ensure that we're encouraging uh, small business participation? Um, you'll hear some options for your consideration today, um, especially in, the light, in light of what we've seen with the most recent lease groups, lease groups four and five, we've seen a, a pretty substantial drop in participation and interest by small business. So we want to do what we can to try to uh, make sure that we get that interest with this just incredible opportunity that we have in front of us. Um, and finally, as I mentioned, we'll be back in front of you in about a month, assuming all goes well today, uh, seeking authorization uh, for proceeding with the RFP and then, bless you, and then future contract signings as well. Uh, so with that, I want to say thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. I want to say thank you again to uh, the ADR staff, and I will hand it over to Clea. Thank you, Jeff. Once again, my name is Clea Moore, and I'm the Senior Manager of Airport Dining and Retail. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, and we will jump right on in. Um, next slide, please. So I will start with an ADR Master Plan update. Next slide. Overall, the ADR master planning effort is complete. The ADR master planning effort began in 2014, in which we procured a consultant to help us identify the deficiencies in the overall program and to help us further our efforts in achieving the goal of becoming a five-star rated airport. This effort included reviewing the categories within each concourse and adjusting the concept categories within each concourse for a better mix of offerings throughout the airport. This resulted in location swapping of categories in which spaces allocated for food and beverage changed to retail and retail spaces changed to food and beverage. Next slide, please. The map that you see before you shows the implementation of our master planning effort, and it can be seen in the category colors throughout. The blue representing food and beverage, green convenience retail, red specialty retail, and yellow and passenger services. Orange represents the current duty-free operations, however, our duty-free is currently out for bid, and the locations that are represented on the map um, detailed as Concourse A duty-free, and sections within the concourse, um, in the South Concourse, are the new duty-free locations. The areas that are, are still part of the master planning effort that are going to be going out for RFP are the Concourse C expansion and the South Concourse Evolution Project. Next slide, please. The implementation of the master planning effort has taken place so far through lease groups two through five, in which we still have a remaining of eight locations to complete, and they are in various stages of design and construction. The remainder of the master planning implementation will take place with the releases as of currently the duty-free that's out for bid, the Concourse C expansion, and the South Concourse Evolution Project. 
the next phase of master planning will take place with the SAM project. Next slide, please. Prior to SAMP, the Concourse D expansion is the last opportunity for new space within the airport outside of the South Concourse Evolution's retail offerings. All future RFPs between, South, between SAMP and the South Concourse retail offerings will be naturally expired locations that are currently established within the program. Next slide, please. Now I'll jump into the Concourse D expansion RFP. Next slide, please. The timing of the release for the Concourse C expansion is aligned with the timing of the completion of the Concourse C expansion as presented to Commission back on September 26th by the project team. Over the last two years, we've constructed a few mezzanine level concepts within the ADR program and have learned that the infrastructure for mezzanine concessions need to have established um, infrastructure prior to concourse level concessions being built. Therefore, the RFP release must take place in enough time to ensure that the construction schedules can be staggered for mezzanine concepts to begin construction in advance of the concourse level spaces. The design and construction timelines in approximately two years for ADR spaces. And as you've seen in the previously presented fly through of the concourse C expansion, the passenger facing experiences for the most part are all the ADR program. So to ensure that we meet that World Cup deadline, we have to release the RFP by Q1 of 2024. Next slide, please. Now to the Concourse C RFP details. As part of our Concourse C RFP, we plan to release a total of 13 spaces. Seven will be food and beverage locations and three will be retail locations, all located within the Concourse C expansion. We have one food and beverage location that'll be located pre-security in the ticketing area. We have two locations that are retail in the concourse area surrounding concourse C. Of those locations, there are two locations, one food and beverage and one retail that we intend to allocate for small business participation only. Next slide, please. There will be a total of two packages that are multi-unit available in this RFP. One will be a retail package and one will be a food and beverage package. All other units will be released as single unit opportunities. A key component of this RFP is that no company, large or small, can be awarded more than three spaces. This is an effort to ensure that opportunities are not cannibalized by any one company and it also provides more opportunity for small businesses to participate. Any company that bids on multiple concepts is required to provide their priority of award in the RFP submission and can only provide one concept per space. So we will not be allowing people to provide alternatives for concepts or bid multiple times for the same location. There are a few exceptions of spaces that will not be a part of this RFP process that are a part of the Concourse D expansion. The first being the six introductory kiosks that are being built out as part of the, ex the expansion. Those six locations are part of our introductory kiosk program and they are short-term leases and they don't go through the RFP process but a much more abbreviated process. And the last is space CC29, which is a replacement space for a tenant that's impacted by the duty-free expansion and that was approved by commission on October 24th. Next slide, please. 
This is the map of the concourse level. The concourse level consists of three dining locations and three retail locations within the concourse C expansion. Additionally, on this level, you can also see that there are two retail locations in the surrounding areas next to concourse C expansion, and you can also see the pre-security dining location. Next slide, please. On the mezzanine level, it consists of four food and beverage locations, including two dedicated ancillary seating locations, which are allocated to two of the locations on the mezzanine. All remaining seating is open seating for all other concepts. Next slide, please. The proposed business terms are to expand from the current lease terms of 10 years to 12 years for food and beverage, and from eight years to 10 for retail. This is a direct response to the ADR lien process improvement findings related to the increased cost to design and construction at the airport, the amount of time needed to see a return on the investment, and increased operational and costs associated with port initiatives and city requirements. Staff has identified that the proposed terms address those factors as well as maintain an appropriate amount of time between achieving a return on investment for the awarded tenant as well as opening up opportunities for new businesses to bid. Next slide, please. At this time, I'd like to shift focus to some of the lessons learned that we have had over the course of the implementation of our master plan, as well as various feedback that has been received from the ADR lien process improvement and barriers to entry study, as well as actions that have been taken or that are in process, and a few considerations remaining to be examined. To start, next slide please. Some of the feedback that has been received is that as part of our master planning effort, when concepts categories were changed from retail to food and beverage, the ADR spaces were not outfitted appropriately for the adjustments. Additionally, the RFP process can be very confusing and costly for those who are new to doing business at the port or interested to enter into the industry. Additionally, there are other various unique barriers to both entry and business growth for small business that we will continue to identify and discuss later in this presentation. Next slide, please. Some of the actions that we've taken so far. ADR conducted a lean process improvement in 2019 and presented the findings on March 8th, 2022. The team will be coming back to commission in Q1 of 2024 for phase one of a shell and core project in which the port will be taking on demolition of all ADR spaces prior to turnover to tenants. This addresses the finding from the barriers to entry study as well as, re as well regarding the high build out costs at the airport as this work will re in result decrease in construction costs approximately 10 to 15% to incoming tenants. In response to the feedback previously received, moving forward ADR will be removing all bid bond requirements from RFP submittals, which was an upfront cost initially. We'll be removing capital investment scoring from RFPs as the cost of build out will change from time of bid to the actual construction due to inflation and have removed the ability from companies to bid MAGS, which is the minimum annual guarantee, and have instituted a minimum percentage rent for all bidders. The removal of mad bidding removes the ability for businesses to buy contracts or edge out competitors solely based on a financial offering, which is an issue that has been discussed consistently throughout the aviation industry. Next slide, please. 
Additional feedback received has identified that the following are considered barriers to both small business entry and business growth within the port. The capability of new small businesses to compete against larger, more established businesses for the same spaces within an RFP. There was feedback that the ADR RFP process can be confusing for those who are new to the process. And mandatory labor processes and policies impacted small business interest in doing business with the port. Next slide, please. In an effort to make the RFP process more accessible, ADR will be hosting first-time bidders classes in Q1 of 2024. These classes will be offered on multiple occasions and will go section by section of the RFP to demystify the RFP process. As mentioned previously, there is an intention to allocate two locations, one food and beverage and one retail, as part of the concourse C expansion for small business participation only. While small businesses can compete for all opportunities, these opportunities are a direct response to the identified barrier to entry for those prospective business partners who have yet to gain entry and have voiced their concerns that they can't compete against larger, more established firms. This is a first time offering for small businesses within the ADR program. Lastly, the labor harmony requirement was introduced as part of the RFP process in Lease Group 4. The barriers to entry study identify that this is one of the reasons that small businesses within the community are not participating in RFPs and current tenants did not continue to bid as with the port as after its inception. The last slide are options for consideration to adjust the small business exemption for a labor harmony agreement. I'll go over the options and then turn it over to Executive Director Metric for further comments. Next slide, please. Option one is to maintain the current small business exemption for labor engagement for bidders who meet the federal stipulations and have 35 or less employees. Option two is to change the small business exemption for labor engagement requirement for bidders who meet the federal stipulations as well as have three spaces at the airport or more. Option three is to change the small business exemption for labor engagement requirement for bidders who meet the federal stipulations for small business. And with that, I'll turn it back over to ED Metric. Thank you, Kalia. <clears throat> Commissioners, as Kalia said, there are many challenges that small businesses face to gain access to ADR opportunities, as well as in growing once they've established a foothold. As I look at the various goals we've set, we have for jobs and employment at the airport, it is my belief that reducing barriers for small business is a, is a key priority because it not only helps with our diversity and contracting goals, but also introduces unique new offerings to our travelers. There were, uh, there were various identified barriers to entry for small businesses as part of the barriers to entry study, and CLIA has mentioned numerous actions that are underway to address many of those in future RFP and ADR processes. With regard to the requirements for labor harmony agreements, while mandatory labor harmony agreements are not the sole driver of small business ADR challenges, we've heard loud and clear that they do serve as a barrier. Uh, this was reported in an initial study which recommended a small business exemption for tenants who had up to five units and, and in the reported supplemental, in the, uh, supplemental interviews and surveys that port staff conducted more recently. Initial review of the data also supports this conclusion. Given the significant decrease in small business applicants for ADR opportunities between lease, lease groups three and four since we put this requirement in place. 
That having been said, we uh, deeply value our relationship with labor and recognize the value that they provide to employees of larger concessionaires in terms of ensuring quality jobs and workplaces. As Kalia said, there are three options developed by staff which we have considered. My recommendation for the commission to consider is option two, which will change the small business exemption to three units instead of five recommended by the barrier study. The proposed number is a compromise between what was originally recommended and what is equitable for small businesses to secure opportunities for multi uh, throughout multiple concourses to allow for a better balance of operational costs and value based on varying passenger demographics by providing the tenant with economies of scale throughout the airport. Of the 23 small businesses currently operating at SEA, initial review of the data suggests that three would not be eligible based on this exemption. As these tenants already have economies of scale within multiple terminals within the airport and have three or more locations. The remaining 20 small business tenants would be eligible for this exemption. This is relatively a relatively modest change, but one with potential to make a large difference for some of our concessionaires. And so I look forward for your uh, feedback on this recommendation. Thank you. And Jeff, I don't know if Jeff Wolf or you had some concluding yeah. comments. Yeah, thank you. Well, we just have one more slide to, to go through. So if we want to go to the next slide, I'll just cover this last one. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, it's just next steps. Uh, so as I mentioned uh, at the with the introductory comments, uh, our plan at this point is to be back in front of you on December 12th for the actual authorization request uh, to move forward with the RFP and then ultimately uh, contract signing. Uh, and then based on uh, receiving that authorization, we would move forward with uh, releasing the RFP in Q1 of next year. All of this is moving towards, of course, staying in alignment with the project itself, which is at this point uh, scheduled to open uh, in advance of the 2026 World Cup, so Q2 of 2026. So again, that's why this schedule here and next steps. Uh, so that concludes uh, the comments that we have for this briefing. Uh, at this point, again, want to say thank you uh, to you all. Thanks to the team and be happy to take any questions. Thank you, guys. Any questions from commissioners? If, if not, I have some. Commissioner Mohammed. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the presentation. I know we've been briefed on this um, as uh, a member of the Aviation Committee. Um, I appreciate the recommendations and the thoroughness and thinking behind those recommendations that have been provided. I think they're important. Um, now more than ever, we need to ensure that we are supporting our small businesses and looking internally to make change and also uh, making some changes externally. Um, so I look forward to um, engaging more on this and, and look forward to you guys bringing this back to us for a commission vote. I did have a question around um, the first time bidders class, so slide 18. Um, I've had people reach out and are really excited about the Seacon course and are interested in doing business with, with the port. Um, when will a, a calendar be provided for that? So we plan to have the classes a month before the RFP release so that it's a little bit fresh mm -hmm. for um, everyone's mind. So it'll be right before we get ready to release. Is there a place where we as commissioners can send people to for them to sign up to get news? Is it just the ADR blog? Or? No, there's actually a website. There actually is an email address. So okay. it's um, the ADR RFP 
email address and we can make sure to send that to clerk Hart and put that in the um, notes for you directly as well so if they sign up for that they'll be able to receive information about the classes as well yes okay they'll wonderful. receive all updates for regarding all RFPs that we have and RFIs great wonderful um, yeah I look forward to um, sitting with the recommendations that you all provided and hopefully um, come to a place where it can support our, our small businesses at the airport we've been engaging them in conversation as well and um, excited to, to uh, see us make a decision that um, allows them to have more opportunity and allows small business entrepreneurs in our region to feel like that they can come to the port of Seattle for opportunities that concludes my thoughts Excellent. and comments Commissioner Calkins uh, I'm really Grateful to the staff for all the work you guys put in on this uh, particular topic. A couple of points I want to make. One is how valuable data are to us making a good decision. And uh, we are now leaning on years of data, both on um, labor and employment at the airport and also on the su success of our contractors and small business partners at the airport. Um, and so the foresight of previous commissions and, and uh, our leadership here in, within the staff to really understand that before we can figure out a solution to this, we really need to understand at a granular level what's going on. And because quite honestly, there are a lot of counterintuitive elements of this kind of work where you think if we pursue this, it'll result in the kind of outcome we want and instead can um, uh, make things worse or um, just be a dead end in terms of outcomes. And so I feel like in this very hard conversation in which we are really trying to elevate two very important values for us, which is the ability of small businesses and WIMBY businesses to succeed in a really incredible commercial environment and for our, our, the workers at the airport to, to have um, a really quality jobs, quality careers. Um, I'm, I'm not content to believe that it's a zero-sum game. I really do think that there is a path forward. It's hard and uh, it's gonna take I think some iterations, we're not gonna get 100% right any time, but uh, I think the, the willingness of staff to continue to drill down, to continue to work with the, the, um, the folks who've come forward as leaders for each element of this, um, and also really to, I, I think commission has been really engaged on this in a positive way, coming in without foregone conclusions, and instead just saying, how can we support, be supportive of outcomes that benefit everyone here? Um, and then ultimately um, doing it in such a way that we can just take as much money from travelers coming through the airport. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but genuinely, we want people to think, I want to get to the airport early because it's my favorite place to shop or it's my favorite place to get a great meal. And that means having uh, workers who love their jobs and having tenants who are thrilled to be a part of our ecosystem. And so, you know, ultimately that's, I think, the goal is people showing up four hours before the flight because SeaTac is just such a great place to be. So um, over the course of the next month, uh, I know that we're going to continue to have conversations with stakeholders. Um, I genuinely learn each time. And, and every time I sit down, I come away feeling like there is a shared desire from everyone I meet with to make things better. Um, and uh, so I don't... I really look forward to those meetings. So I, I know I've got a couple on the calendar, um, and I, I think I will continue to meet individually with commissioners to just kind of hash through some of the stuff. Um, but yeah, I think we're we're getting toward a an outcome that's a win-win. So thank you all.
Anyone else? Commissioner Hazagala? <clears throat> I, um, I really appreciate the, um, the thought and the time that staff has put into this and making sure that commissioners understand the options before us. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we're not meeting our ADR goals, right? Um, and something has to be done in order to make sure that we're supporting ACDBEs. We know that. I really appreciated Director Little coming to us directly and saying, let's start from a place of values, right? We have goals. Um, what's the right thing to do when we're trying to balance between values and risk? And some of the things that he lifted up, and I, I, I could not agree more, is we value anti-racism, we value equity, and we commit ourselves to dismantling institutional racism to ensure equitable opportunities for all people. Um, and you know, um, one of the things that I, um, I, I bring um, as a commissioner, and I know that I share this as a core value with all of my colleagues, um, is that we really, really, really value um, the people who are at the center of these decisions. Um, that's the workers themselves, the business owners themselves. Um, and part of what we're trying to balance here is um, what is our goal in terms of ensuring that we are also promoting not only business opportunities, but quality jobs. And so, um, and so that's, um, that's part of what um, I, I ask of you. I just want to um, reiterate what Commissioner Calkins said is that the data has been absolutely critical in this process. As a member of the Equity Workforce Development Committee, we were able to understand the barriers study. We identified areas where we can make some other improvements, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, and so um, you've presented us with three options. You made a recommendation um, f on, on option two that would um, uh, reduce us to um, stipulations uh, who meet federal stipulations and have three spaces at the airport. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the number three? Why the number three is significant um, and, and why we've landed there as opposed to the five that was recommended in the report. Absolutely. So the number five was, as, as you mentioned, it was a part of the report. And so when you have one, one doesn't allow you the opportunity to be able to truly feel the value of balancing out um, the ebbs and flows of the airport. And so two also wouldn't necessarily do that. Um, when you feel the ebbs and flows of the airport and a rebound of an airport terminal when you deal with airport re airline realignment and things of that nature, mm -hmm. it's not going to be the same on every concourse. Mm -hmm. And so three does give you the breadth of being able to balance out operational costs. We do have a variety of different initiatives that we push, whether it be port initiatives, we have city mandates and things of that nature. So being able to find that balance in the economies of scale really needs to be felt over multiple spaces. To do that, as well as the increased cost. As you know, the city of SeaTac does identify what the minimum wage is at our airport. Specifically, it specifically speaks to transportation and hospitality. Hospitality does fall within ADR. Mm -hmm. So while that may not fall for every other branch, it does fall within ADR, especially from a food and beverage perspective. Mm -hmm. So at bare minimum, they continue to have that. Come January 1, they will move up to 1976 an hour, which is the highest in the state of Washington as far as the minimum wage. Um, and quite honestly, probably close to the highest in the country. And then subsequently, they pay higher than that. And so to be able to balance out all of those additional costs, 
we do find that three at that point you are operating as a prime within an airport you do have multiple spaces you do have economies of scale within the airport five is a pretty high amount of space and so that would give you an opportunity to have coverage in a lot of locations um, a headcount balance is not a realistic balance at an airport like this for instance we have a location um, a very small location, a single location, a woman-owned business that has, owns a coffee shop and has 36 employees. So to run a 24-hour coffee shop, she would be obligated to be able to have an, a labor harmony agreement to bid for another space here. Okay. So for her, the opportunity is it, its very stifling for her to be able to move to the next step. But if he, she were to have multiple locations throughout the airport, it does allow her that economies of scale um, within, based on whatever that passenger demographic is specifically throughout. And so three is the balance that feels right and that we do believe is the right amount um, that allows you to cover multiple demographics with passengers. Okay, and I appreciate that answer because it anticipated my next question, which was okay. option two as compared to option one, which is, um, you know, maintaining status quo where your um, exemption for labor engagement for bidders who meet federal stipulations and have 35 or less employees, that headcount that you're talking about. So can you talk to me about projections about just um, workforce? I mean, have we taken that into consideration? Does, do, if we were to go with option two, does that mean less jobs? Not necessarily. I think what you might find is you find that some companies will move towards integrating more technology so that they can operate with less workforce. Mm -hmm. We don't find that from a lot of small businesses. They tend to move towards more workforce because they want to have better control of quality and they want to be able to have more people quality in Quality of the job or quality of the product? Quality of the product mm -hmm. and the service. And so they have a tendency to hire even more staff to be able to accommodate that. Um, so they have less integration of technology to be able to do that. Is it um, a false dichotomy to say that we're talking about creating potentially more jobs but, but are of less quality? Uh, no, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, I think the qualities are still there. I think the quality is still there. It's still a quality job regardless. Um, but I do think that headcount is a very challenging thing. When it comes to what works for one business may not work for another. You may have national brands that, that dictate how many people you need to have, and they may have different call-outs specifically for certain types of things that they want to have as well as things that they want to integrate. Um, while proprietary concepts, you can kind of dictate that specifically. Um, but you do have, when you challenge, when you require a headcount only, it does kind of state that, you know, you can't, you're trying to work within that window so you can avoid that, as opposed to being able to just continue to hire as many people as possible. We received the uh, barriers to entry study um, in a presentation and um, public forum before, so I won't ask questions about that, about the stakeholdering and the folks who had voice in that, but what I am wondering is if um, you could talk a little bit about stakeholdering um, in relation to, um, to this proposal. As far as engagement for um, of ACDVEs of labor stakeholders, uh, any stakeholdering that's gone on um, around this conversation. Any. So, so the outreach specific to this. Okay, so. Well, I mean, obviously, we we did a series. We did the study with the stakeholders, and then we did also did additional 
um, additional interviews with the uh, with the businesses on that side as well. So on that side, and uh, we have had conversations with um, with labor. Any other questions or comments? Commissioner Fallon? Well, thank you for trying to balance something that has always been one of those uh, confounding issues since I've been here all of my years. It seems the pendulum keeps on swinging one way or the other, and you've tried to find a, a middle ground here. And based on conversations I've had so far, this, people are still at the table, so it seems like you are honing in, but it always takes on uh, the devils and the details always. Uh, one of the two things that... Um, I, I was thinking about was in 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 the data presentation um, were the um, small businesses that were not primes included in the number of ACBDEs employed at the airport that they were working under the primes I keep on forgetting what the term for that is um, so in, maybe it's Mian's question so when you're counting about how many small businesses are at the airport currently mm -hmm. if you're working under a prime like are you still counted it. as a small business you mean as far as like a, like a joint venture or something of that nature yes joint ventures are you no you're not because you're not directly leased so so the prime holds the majority of that contract so you're not counted as a small business who has a direct lease with the port well that's kind of an interesting question though i mean it the, the concept although i don't know that it's fully uh, accomplished is obviously to be able to fledge from being a joint venture to being a, a prime. But in the meantime, you are really working as a small business. You're operating as a small business. So a joint venture agreement depends on how your, how your joint venture is structured. So a joint venture is structured differently for each company. You could be a joint venture whose responsibility is to handle HR or to handle purchasing and do nothing from an operational standpoint. Mm. So it really depends on the structure of the joint venture agreement, um, but it doesn't necessarily speak to you being in the operating structure of the contract itself. Um, so they each depend. But yes, there are, we do have numbers specific, and we can get you data specifically to the joint venture structures, well, yes. I, I would agree, unless you're doing the operations, you're really not, shouldn't be counted. But it would be good to understand of the population of ACDBE businesses, mm -hmm. what of them are in the joint venture Absolutely. for the operational side. Just so we understand, the data are very important, but we have to know what the data reflect. Absolutely. So, so that, that would be, um, that'd be really good. And I, like I said, I think, um, the, the, I guess the only other question was in terms of the, the, the number, the magic number, right, whether it's 35 or whatever. I, I think the, um, the concern might be not just the, the base threshold, but the, the maximum. I mean, at a certain point in time, what's a small business, right? You know, and, and this exemption, does it apply to, it's the federal definition, right? Right. Which, please remind me, is how many? So it depends. So from an, from an airport dining and retail standpoint, it doesn't have a headcount. It's about gross annual sales. So yeah, so it would just depend on where a business falls. Um, when it comes to your larger businesses, they don't, they don't fall in that category altogether. Um, so they're far surpassed where they could be from a dollar standpoint. Um, but there are three particular. There's a limited service restaurant. There's a full service restaurant. There's gifts, um, gifts and novelties and convenience retail kind of things. And so they have different um, thresholds specific, and those range for all of those somewhere between 
10 million to 13 million dollars and I can get you the exact numbers back. Well, I, I certainly don't need the exact numbers, but the some sort of sense for the, you know, the non-retail, mm -hmm. the, the idea that, you know, how much of an equivalency can there be between gross revenue and employees? You know, is there like some ballpark thing where you can actually just use the data you know exist? Because um, I, I just see that as another place where, you know, well, a small number, a small number of these exemptions, shall we say, are acceptable, but if they're relatively big businesses, we're going to run into probably more pushback than if they're, you know, a moderate-sized business. Right. And and then also just that foundational data, you know, how many? I mean, I think one of the important pieces of data that you, that did bring up is that the reduction in applications for apply up to apply for a small business, uh, an, an ADR facility. Right. So that that is really a reflection of the future. But I mean, just to create an accurate baseline, I think it would be helpful to know that joint venture question. Absolutely. All right, Absolutely. thank you. Anyone else? Um, Kalia, what's the average gross revenue of one of our ADR tenants? A food and beverage or a retail? Or? Food and beverage. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I could, for a full service restaurant, yeah, maybe somewhere around three, four million. And the federal stipulation for a small business for uh, food and beverage is what? Limited service would be somewhere around 10. 10? 10. So theoretically, and I'm sure you've done this math, but even with three spaces, you could exceed a $10 million gross revenue, correct? You could. In which case, they would not be exempt from a LHA. After they, after they got to that point, yeah, they wouldn't. So we do have, as as Director Metric mentioned, there are a few that would not be um, exempt. And do we know who would not be exempt? We do. Okay. Could you please provide that to me? Absolutely. Secondly, um, uh, one thing that we've, um, you know, to going back to Commissioner Hazegawa's questions about engagement, I know that uh, commissioners have had uh, conversations. Commissioner Calkins and I um, met with the small business. Um, advisory Council, I think that's what they call themselves, uh, SBAAC. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about at what point these small businesses need to negotiate LHA in the process. It is after, it is with, after award, they would need to engage with labor and negotiate prior to um, contract negotiation. Contract negotiation with us? Yes. Prior to contract negotiation. So they do, so they don't have to negotiate an LHA prior to applying? No, but it's prior to, so they, once we have awarded them, before we can negotiate contract with them. So I guess one of the things that came up was at what point in the process an LHA needs to be negotiated. There's no question about whether or not an LHA needs to be negotiated, but why isn't our policy such that it's after our contract negotiation? That is currently, that is the current process, yeah. You just told me that they negotiate before contracting. So if I can jump in. Sure. So you're asking could we delay it? In yes. Essence, it's certainly an option as another a way to assist. It's, these are, the, we, these are what we're trying to balance in terms of, you know, what's the right action to take here. It's certainly, Commissioner, you know, another form of, you know, what route do we want to go? Is it just on criteria? you know, for how, how you're defined as a small business, or is it 
at what point in the process. So we're completely open to that as well. Because I think one of the things that I heard from speaking with these small business owners is not the fact that they are against, in principle, a labor harmony agreement. It is the fact that it's costly, it takes time, it is a barrier to more applicants, right? And so it would be helpful if we gave our small business awardees absolute certainty on the terms and conditions of their lease with the Port of Seattle before they go into that. I'm not saying we should get rid of LHAs. I'm saying that we should give them all the certainty in the world that we possibly can before they go and expend all this money on an LHA. Because let's say we award something to a small business owner, we make them negotiate an LHA, we go into contracting with the port and they decide, you know what, I don't want to do this. Then they're out all the money they just negotiated with the LHA, correct? That is correct. So I would like us to consider at what point in the process, as far as down the line, in the pipeline as we can, uh, I'm not suggesting we get rid of the requirement for LHAs, but I am suggesting that maybe we should look at at what point in the process we require this to be done. I'm okay potentially with a 90-day window after a contract is signed with the port, right? I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not saying that's what we're going to do. But I think we need to get creative and really make sure that we reduce the real barriers, right? What I heard, again, at the SBAC was not that they're all against the LHAs. It is that the LHA becomes a disincentive to apply and to become a tenant because there's still uncertainty around what their business is going to look like. Like, at the end of the day, a business is about managing risk, right? And at the end of the day, if you don't know what risk you're walking into, you don't want to take any, right? And so there are probably many small business owners who are in a situation where they had to negotiate an LHA before they even had a contract with the port. That is a fundamental problem in this process. So if you could please come back to us in the next month with some potential solutions on how to address that problem, I think it would go a long way in addressing the issues that small businesses have. Okay. Is that clear? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Commissioner, can I ask you yeah. a clarifying question about that, which is it's not, not like an or. So when we're talking about the number of units, this is a uh, – so when a LH – when a labor harmony agreement does apply, that that's what you're talking about, the process Correct. in that case. So just, right. So, but not as a, but you want to look that, at that, that issue is separate. by These are two separate issues. Right. I'm not referring to the, num the quota. I'm referring to just at what point in the when process we require. Yes. When it applies. So okay. assuming, uh, okay, let me cl just clarify to make sure that no one's confused. Assuming you need to negotiate an LHA, mm -hmm. what point in the process do we require it to be done? Got it. Is it before yeah. contracting with the Port of Seattle? Is it after we've negotiated the terms with the Port of Seattle? Are we all on the same page? Okay, thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Commissioner Cho, um, President Cho. <laughs> you can call me Sam. <laughs> I heard you correct someone today. <laughs> um, the data and also the reporting that we heard from the barriers report may point to the fact that the LHA, like when it's introduced as a problem, but I, I feel like we're hearing loud and clear though from the small businesses that, the, the really small businesses that maybe haven't hit that $10 million threshold that signing or negotiating an LHA that doesn't have a template or that they haven't seen is the biggest barrier for them. 
Am I understanding that correctly? That is also an identified barrier, yes. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's one of the biggest barriers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, and I apologize, I got this wrong. I didn't meet with them with Commissioner Caucus. I met them with you. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm still jet lagged. Give me okay. some grace. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Cause no, but you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, part of it is at what point do we negotiate the LHA, sign the LHA, but also the other part is what's in it, right? And is there a potential to standardize it such that the legal fees and or negotiations aren't as onerous, right? And so I agree with you. That was something that was brought up during our meeting that, um, you know, I don't know what the legality of that is, but it is something that could reduce some of the friction as well. Again, it's not on principle that they're against it. It's just that it's, it's, it's a huge barrier. And we're not adopting any recommendation, but I just want to make sure that I, I'm hearing yeah. where the barrier, the biggest barrier lies for those small businesses for us to make the best decision in the future. Yeah. I think it's also important to remind folks that we have nothing to do with the contents of the LHA. Correct. That is between the two parties to the contract. We are not party to the contract. I, I also appreciate and heard in conversations that, uh, you know, that, um, lack of awareness of, of what an LHA would look like for a first-time small business competing for one of these bids could be too high a barrier to, to overcome. And I think um, I, I think there's a, uh, a willingness to, to consider how that particular part of it could be overcome by our partners in this. And uh, so I think we should keep pushing on that to make sure that wherever transparency is, is possible without creating an undue burden on one side or the other, um, that, you know, I would encourage them to pursue that um, as it makes it easier for both sides. And the only folks who win in, in a situation in which a lot of negotiation is required are the attorneys who are paid by both parties to do that. And so if we can make it, if, if we can encourage them to keep their processes streamlined as possible, and as you said, you know, uh, the later it is in the process, the fewer that have to go through it unnecessarily, I think that's better. Uh, it, I, does our legal counsel have any comments or questions? Oh, you know, there's a, I, I have a lot of uh, You're on the edge, edge of your head. seat here. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just working with the, with the team and understanding the options you want to look at. And uh, labor harmony agreements are important for preventing disruption at the airport. And there's certain tenets about the appropriate way to enter into them. So we'll just bring our advice to the, yep. to the questions and come back to you. Excellent. Any final thoughts or comments from the team? Sorry, we're grilling you, but this is important yeah. stuff. All right, great. Well, with that, uh, that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? Yeah, Commissioner Fallon. Well, I'd like to start by uh, thanking the residents of King County for their overwhelming support for my reelection to a third term on the commission. And as a representative of a broad cross-section of the county, and one of the few of Jewish upbringing to have served on the commission, I felt that it's imperative that I address the atrocities that have been occurring in the Mideast over the past month. The commission will be bringing forward a formal proclamation, I believe, next week's meeting, but I just felt it's important that I say something here. I want to underscore the importance of our community's standing in solidarity against violence to innocent people, including the rash of racially charged violence 
targeting innocent people of Muslim and Jewish faith. According to the Anti-Defamation League that just published yesterday, there's been a 316% increase in anti-Semitic acts nationally over the past month, which is about 200 a day. And according to a recent report by the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, there's been a 1,300% increase, increase in Islamophobia in Canada over the same period. Last Friday, the CBC reported that 60 interfaith leaders signed a letter calling for compassion, peace, and an end to hatred. And to quote from one sentence from that letter, uh, many, are many are grieving death and loss. Together we want to acknowledge that pain and suffering as something that transcends religion, race, or ethnicity. We grieve as one human family. And so I'd like to underscore that we must not let the moment of such conflict to create an excuse to legitimize the latent bigotry that unfortunately still inf infiltrates our communities. And I greatly appreciate conversations I've been having with Commissioner Mohammed, which has revealed great alignment. And I'd like to conclude by repeating the quote from, and I'll get this wrong, Iman Twakal, as reported in the CBC, hate needs to be countered with humanity. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Any other, Commissioner Mohammed? Um, well, I will start first by congratulating both Commissioner Feldman and President Cho on your reelection. Congratulations to the both of you. Um, and I also echo the same sentiments of Commissioner Feldman as a Muslim commissioner, uh, a person of, of Muslim faith, and com uh, Commissioner Feldman being Jewish. I think um, we both bring very unique perspectives, and um, you know, the, the port is a gateway that welcomes people from all over the world. And um, we always say that we stand united against hate, and we are seeing an increase of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism locally and globally, and it's heartbreaking. And I just want our Jewish staff members, our Muslim staff members, our Palestinian staff members, our Israeli staff members to know that you belong, we see you, we do grieve with you, we do grieve as a one human family, period. That's, that's a fact. And we always stand united against hate, period. And we hope to see an end to the violence. I'm sending you all lots of love. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Any others? Thank you, Executive Director Metric. Any closing comments? Or no, uh, Mr. President, uh, thanks for your uh, time today. Thank you. Hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned today at 310 on the dot. Thank you. Thank you.